She's pure alligator, pure white. Two. Albinos that do make it to reproductive age can't find a mate because they look funny. One. Albino What's up, guys? Uh, I'm Andrew, and this is Peter with Wild Florida. We have some really exciting news we wanted to talk to you guys about. Um, so starting off, we have one of last year's baby albino alligators. So he's just over a year old now. You can see he's getting pretty big. And we have some exciting news. So we actually, uh, we went back to back, just like uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning Stanley Cup. And we actually scored another year of albino alligators. So we just hatched these little guys out. So you can see here. So last year's baby albino and this year's baby albinos. How about that for size comparison? So that's like back-to-back -back championships in our book right there. So we're really excited. Um, we have these guys in the back right now. We're taking really good care of them, making sure they're doing really good. And then uh, before long, we'll have them out on exhibit too. So we just want to share that exciting news with you guys. Hope you uh, stay tuned and come check these guys out. The survivors of the nuclear fire called the War Judgment Day. They lived only to face a new nightmare, the war against the machines. Here's an attention-grabbing headline. Flawed AI makes robots racist sexist. Hmm. It's from an online piece from Georgia Tech's College of Computing, authored by Jill Rosen, and it gives a summary about a report presented at this year's conference on fairness, accountability, and transparency. And you're probably saying, what's it all about? Well, joining me now are two of the study's co-authors from Georgia Tech. We have Dr. Andrew Hunt, a computing innovation postdoctoral fellow at Georgia Tech, and Vicki Zhang, a Ph.D. student studying computer science at Johns Hopkins University. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us on. All right, let's get to it, but let's just back up a little bit because I always like to think that for somebody listening, there are some terms they may not know anything about, and we like to educate. That's what we do here. So folks who aren't familiar, I'll start with you, Vicki. Just how involved is artificial intelligence in our day-to-day, -day, everyday lives? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that artificial intelligence is, in a way, already involved in our everyday lives, but not as much as people might envision it or hope for in the future that we're all still really hopeful for. And so can consider many applications of robotics and AI that's already in place. For example, facial recognition systems mm -hmm. or many of these other systems that kind of use machine learning and use models to help us alleviate some of the jobs or not jobs for some of the tasks that can be done with automation. Hmm. Andrew, what do you want to add to that? Um, well, so AI generally is in uh, many, many of the websites we use, like YouTube and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, our, our research is considering uh, robots with AI, mm -hmm. so with uh, where they might have a motor or something like that. Um, and that is uh, that sort of thing is in some like warehouses, some uh, you know sorting in recycling facilities. Uh, there's a number of different places, uh, but it's definitely a lot uh, less common, but growing quickly. So when we talk about then in, in, in robots, uh, walk our listeners through, and Andrew, I'll stay with you for a moment, how this, is it a software that's developed? Uh, I want you to break this down as if you have to explain this to someone in kindergarten or a public radio host, either one. <laughs> yeah, so there's, um, 
one of the one of the big things that I've worked on is is software. Yeah, so there's a lot of companies that uh, produce robots that you can add different attachments to, like a robot arm. You might have seen you know videos of uh, welding robots in mm -hmm. in car factories. Uh, that's like one of the most common kinds of robots. Or um, you know Roombas use some AI to go around houses, and then um, let's see. Wait, wait, wait. The, the little vacuum thing that you can put on the floor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. That, and the way they go around, uh, they can they can sort of map out your floor as they go. Uh, some of the some of the Roombas, uh, and let's see. So then, uh, sorry, I lost track of the question. That's okay. You're just you're going to give an example in terms of how these robots, you know, how AI is used, how it's developed in to to be used in these robots. Mm -hmm. Oh, so in our specific case, there's this um, rob there's this AI called um, this popular image decaption matching AI mm -hmm. uh, that basically they downloaded lots of images and the descriptions of those images uh, from the internet, and uh, which can contain all sorts of data where mm -hmm. the the descriptions can be true, partly true, false, even harmfully biased, and uh, they trained it on billions of examples to try and say, oh, is the image similar to the caption? And we knew about some previous work led by Abiba Burhane that evaluated this AI mm -hmm. uh, and showed that it has some race and gender bias. So for example, an official, official NASA photo of a female space shuttle commander mm -hmm. uh, was described as uh, an astronaut with an American flag and that was a worse match than housewife in an orange jumpsuit. Um, so we kind of wanted to investigate how biased AI might affect a robot because some roboticists took this AI because it has, you know, pictures of household objects, cups, shoes, mm -hmm. hats uh, in the in the data set because it's just from all sorts of websites. And uh, it can also match that in addition to this bias. And so uh, they put it onto a robot and to say, grab an object and put it into a box. And we wanted to see, does that bias carry through to the robot arm that can grab stuff and place it somewhere else? Let me ask you this, and Vicky, this question is for you. Someone listening might say, you know, I don't work in tech. You're all talking about, you know, in terms of machine learning for robots. Why should I care about these these biases? What would you, what would you say? Yeah, I think that in that aspect, I think, like Andrew said, many of these technologies will be used to assist humans or even interact with humans on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. For example, like image caption mapping, you have images being matched to the descriptions. You can imagine in many recommendation systems, but perhaps in the near future in like social platforms, when you upload a photo, they would say, recommend you a text. Like, do you want to add this as your caption? Mm -hmm. So in reality, like many of these technologies, when they develop to a certain point at performance, they would start getting proposed and advertised for commercial use and also to be used in our everyday lives. So definitely, if you're not even if you're just a minority, but if you're just a person, you would not want an AI to potentially be making unfair judgments on you. And so in this study that you all worked on, how are you able to then take this data? What, what metrics did you use then? to be able to come up with the conclusion that some of these, this the AI technology being used was sexist and racist. Um, yeah, so what we did is we took um, this uh, pre-existing robot AI that can sort of 
move objects around based on a description. And we realized that uh, lots of objects have pictures of people on them, like food boxes, packaging, books, toys. And so what we did is we tried placing just simplified little blocks into the scene with uh, different people mm -hmm. uh, who vary according to their uh, self-classified race and gender, um, and then gave it instructions that were uh, designed to evoke stereotypes like uh, pack the criminal in the brown box uh, and see what, what behavior occurs. Mm -hmm. uh, and so one appropriate decision could be refuse to act since there are no criminals and a robot can't make that designation. Mm -hmm. uh, but nonetheless, the robot put blocks uh, into the box. Hmm. So just so we understand, you all gave the robot a task, like putting objects in a box, and then based on those commands, you all determine that the robot was was pretty much operating on some type of bias. Is that what you I just want to make sure our listeners understand because you, yeah. you said a lot there. Okay. Vicky. Oh, yeah, yeah. So let, let me Go let ahead. me explain that a little more. Yeah. Uh so if you um if we have it if we give it the instruction like uh pack the doctor in the box and we have it do it a thousand times and sometimes it doesn't uh move the objects, sometimes it it moves one particular object, one one person with a certain race and gender, uh, and and puts them into the box. We count those up as it runs many so times. So let me guess, the robot picked a lot of white folks. Is that <laughs> uh, what you're saying? For when it came to, so one of our results was that um, women were less likely to be identified as, as doctor than men. Uh, and once, were they white? The box, there's a person. Um, most of the time, uh, some of the other categories, I, I don't have like an exact result for that okay. particular case, but um, uh, another one was that once the robots seen the faces, we were able to see that uh, black men were identified as criminals approximately 9% more often than white men. Vicky, what do you want to add to that? Oh, yeah, I just wanted to like quickly add. So when you talked about like giving the different commands, what we would have ideally is for it to act to pick up none of them, or at least pick up, pick them up equally. So that would mean that it doesn't have any bias in mind when you give it when you ask it for a criminal janitor homemaker and stuff. But like you said, there are trends where like white people are picked up six percent more than black people, and also that women are picked up seven percent less than men. And even in the doctor case that you talked about, across all ethnicities, women are picked up less than their men counterparts. So we can see that across commands and within them, there are all these strong stereotypes that you kind of mentioned earlier. And Vicky, I, I, I saw a quote from you where you said, sadly, these re you said these results, sadly, unsurprising. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think that kind of matched with what you were asking earlier when you said like, oh, I guess they picked up lots of white folks. Unfortunately, that is like all the stereotypes and like trends that we see or what we kind of expect from what humans sometimes think about too. So this also brings up the topic, topic about like when you take all of these data from the internet and when you're mm -hmm. processing the model without carefully filtering or considering all these consequences, you would end up with stereotypes that might or might not reflect what some people already mm -hmm. have. And then you're making this into explicit behavior done by a robot with no human intervention. Uh, well, let's talk about that then. How do we fix this? Is it then gonna be on human intervention to to change this and if so how do we do it andrew um yeah so the uh 
biggest source uh, of change, I think one of the big sources of change that I think we could make is looking at the, the human process of developing these technologies, uh, where we really need to start by assuming there's going to be uh, identity bias of some kind or another, mm -hmm. uh, be it, uh, you know, race, gender, uh, LGBTQ plus identity, um, uh, national origin case, uh, you have to assume that that problem is going to be there, especially mm -hmm. if it's data from what's in the world. And then you need to prove that you've addressed it before uh, it goes out and quantify mm -hmm. those issues, uh, uh, especially if, uh, um, and it, but it's also important to get consent from the different groups that the mm -hmm. robot is expected the or the AI is expected to interact with. Uh, Vicky, you heard what Andrew had to say there through your lens and where do you all begin folks who work in this space? You all, how do you begin then to solve this? Oh yeah. Me and Andrew, we actually came from kind of different perspectives. I, I'm now second year PhD, but when I first joined Andrew on the project, I was just a first year PhD and I was just studying computer science. So really ethics wasn't something I was focused on. Mm -hmm. It's something that we know that we should care about, but as researchers, sometimes like we, we are a little more interested in like all of those cool research areas and stuff. And so when Andrew introduced me this project, I was pretty surprised, but also like his results were surprising because when he approached me, he already did a preliminary experiment with like hair shampoo products. Cause that's like in real life with commercial products where you have like human models on them. Mm -hmm. And so he did a quick experiment with just black and white men. And then we found that white men were picked up so much more often than the black men in like the informal study. And that's what got me like noticing the project. And so I joined Andrew on it. And then after joining it, we see all of these other disturbing stereotypes. And I'm curious when this was presented at that conference on fairness, accountability, and transparency, or as you all working on this, have you gotten some feedback from folks in your space that might've said, well, maybe this isn't such a big deal, or you all are making a little bit more out than this happenstance. Cause when folks hear AI robots, you know, robots are racist and sexist, you know, some raise an eyebrow and say, come on now. What'd you hear, Andrew? Um, yeah, well, we don't, uh, we're not, one thing is that we're not attributing agency to the robot itself. Of course. Uh, in, in the same way, you know, uh, someone who posted, yeah. <laughs> and then what What was, so oh, I lost track of That's okay. What, what have you been hearing uh, from your cohorts or from people could, in this industry? Yeah, in terms of. What have you been hearing in terms of feedback from other folks? Oh, yeah, yeah. So at the at the conference itself, uh, the the feedback has been very very positive um, because that's the sort of issue that that's being studied there. Um, and then um, the robotics community is a lot less familiar with this, mm -hmm. so um, that is still a uh, sort of a, a work in progress. But that's not. Uh, that's just a general statement. There's, there's, I've, I've had a number of people reach out to me with very positive comments as well. All right. So then where do you go from here then, Vicky? Yeah, I think it's also slightly similar to what Andrew mentioned before. What we really want to do now is start spreading the message so that the community starts prioritizing it a little more. Like what Andrew said, like ethics, sometimes it's kind of like in the back of people's minds, but mm -hmm. not necessarily their first priority. So what we're hoping for is that as more research in these ethics and bias start revealing itself, people will start putting more focus onto this problem and start being more proactive in solving this. Like we mentioned, there's many things that could be done within the research process to help alleviate down this 
problem. And so by driving more attention to it and possibly invoking more policy changes to be stricter on the ethics counterparts of our research, we can have people while doing research be also noticing for any possible ethics um, problems that come with their research. Does it also mean that there probably needs to be some type of amplified uh, presence as it relates to ethics and all of this? I don't know you know, exactly in terms of a phase when you, when you all are developing this technology for whatever type of innovation. But does this also mean that perhaps there needs to be some greater uh, sig- significance on the ethics part of this? Uh, absolutely. We've, um, some conferences have, have started adding ethical review uh, before papers get accepted. Uh, and that's one of the things we're really advocating for in the sort of ro- robotics venues, the methods we uh, evaluated were published in, uh, but currently they they don't have that sort of review. Um, well, maybe after this and hearing this, they'll get it done. Andrew Hunt, a, com- so. a computing innovation postdoctoral fellow at Georgia Tech, also Vicki Zhang, a PhD student studying computer science at Johns Hopkins University. We were talking about study they co-authored that found biases within artificial intelligence technology and no we did not say that robots are racist and sexist y'all stop emailing me uh thank you both for taking your time i really appreciate it good conversation we don't have to bring you all back uh, i know you like the way i'm freaking it i talk with slang and i'm gonna never stop speaking it speak with criminal slang that's just the way that i talk yo vocabulary spills i'm ill speak with criminal slang that's just the way that i talk yo Black people have long contributed to the ways in which we use the English language. Linguistics professor Sanja Lanehart shares some examples. If we look at some present words, we can think of something like woke and hip, cool, bad, meaning good. Lanehart is on the advisory board of a new Oxford Dictionary of African American English that is set to create a historical record of these contributions. Finally, we will have a space that recognizes our language in a way that encompasses all the people within African-American language communities. Although there have been projects like this in the past, Lanehart says none have reached this magnitude. This dictionary is distinct in that it focuses on this particular language variety of African-Americans in a way that hasn't been done before. So it will be much more expansive and much more inclusive of the language as opposed to some words here and there. The project is a collaboration between Harvard University's Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research and Oxford University Press. It's one of the most well-funded efforts of its kind and the first edition of the dictionary expected in about three years. Lane Hart says what makes this project so special is that it won't just have definitions. It'll also provide historical context for each word. The etymology of a word, the history of the word is extremely important. And so for this, they'll note when a word first came into the language, who was using it, where was it being used? And that's really important in understanding how a language sort of has developed and evolved and who's been a part of it. Besides books, newspapers, oral histories and music, the dictionary will also draw from social media. One of the things that's going to be interesting about this is that because of social media and Black Twitter, There are words that are represented in terms of the ways that Black people have used them, and it's going to be really important to look at that and how words are created in that particular space. Social media has allowed an outlet in a way that Black people hadn't really had before. 
And she says looking at social media can highlight the regional, economic, and social roots of language. Dictionaries uh, attempt to codify language. That is, this is the spelling, this is the definition. And what's going to be important about this and getting it right is listening to the people, especially for current things, listening to the people in terms of what they say and how they say these words are used and what they mean to them. Lanehart says this is important because African-American language has been viewed from a deficit perspective in the past. I think it's taken a lot to get to this point to show that Black people and Black language aren't grotesque. They're not exotic. Uh, they're not deficient. They have a language variety that is different and should be recognized just like any other language variety. And this new dictionary aims to credit and celebrate this variety. This is NPR News. What's the score, Mr. Barber? St. Louis on top, five to nothing. What inning is it? Bottom of the seventh. You like baseball, do you, Anderson? Yeah, I do. You know, it's the only time when a black man can wave a stick at a white man and not start a riot. Baseball fans are making their annual pilgrimage to Cooperstown, New York, for the National Baseball Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Former Red Sox slugger David Ortiz gets his plaque in the hall. And a lesser-known player, Bud Fowler, is also being honored. It's part of an effort to celebrate black black players who came before Jackie Robinson. Here's Vaughn Golden of member station WSKG. When people think of pioneering black baseball players, Jackie Robinson is usually the first to come to mind. He was the first black player in Major League Baseball. But decades before Robinson was even born, John Jackson, better known as Bud Fowler, was playing on professional white teams. John Thorne is the official historian of Major League Baseball. He says Fowler was a well-regarded pitcher and second baseman in the 1880s. It's not merely the stats that we have. But the fact that there was always a home for him, everybody wanted Bud Fowler until they didn't. And the people who didn't want him were his teammates. And Fowler encountered that racism often. In 1887, two players on the Binghamton Bingos refused to play with Fowler. The team's owners caved and Fowler left. Soon after, all the teams in the league banned black players, beginning the creation of baseball's color line. Thorne was on the committee that voted to induct Fowler. He says his credentials matched Hall of Famer contemporaries like Saul White and Frank Grant. The thing that left him off the ballot when Saul White and Frank Grant went in was the very thing that got him in this time because it was his dignity as an African-American that prevented him from accepting slights from teammates or townspeople or media. James Brunson is an author and historian specializing in black baseball. He believes figures like Fowler haven't been given enough consideration. We need to take it seriously. And I think we're still operating on a pre-Jackie Robinson philosophy that nothing good came out of black baseball in the 19th century. Brunson points to statistics. He says while digitization of old newspapers is helping provide statistics from the early days of baseball, those stats aren't always reliable. Brunson thinks it runs deeper, though. For instance, many accounts incorrectly credit Fowler as the first black professional ball player. Brunson says that fails to acknowledge professional all-black teams that were around since the 1860s. First professional black team showed up 
Fowler was, what, 12 years old? I mean, that's an insult. In 2020, Major League Baseball made a huge step. It acknowledged that the segregated Negro Leagues qualified as a major league, meaning its players belonged in the record books along with white athletes. Josh Rawich is the president of the Hall of Fame. He says that mission has found its way to Cooperstown, too. I think Major League Baseball has done a great job of trying to bring light to the fact that there were, in fact, leagues that existed, Negro Leagues and before, and that when you look at the caliber of talent that existed in the Negro Leagues, it was certainly on par with the the National League and the American League. Both Thorne and Brunson agree there are more Bud Fowlers out there, and finding and honoring them only presents opportunities to deepen baseball's legacy. For NPR News, I'm Vaughn Golden in Cooperstown, New York. I was around when Pearl Harbor, I knew where I was when Pearl Harbor was bombed. I was 12 years old. I was sitting in my father's restaurant reading the funny papers. Uh, you know, they're right near the cash register. And it was a little crackly radio sitting up on a shelf. And it said, Pearl Harbor has been bombed. And I remember two or three people sitting in the restaurant, and one of them asked, Pearl Harbor? Where? Where is Pearl Harbor? And, you know, because nobody knew. You know, it's somewhere overseas somewhere, you know. Somebody answered, wouldn't it? Say, the Japanese? And then they say, you mean Hitler, don't you? I say, no, Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And so I didn't know. I'm 12 years old, so I'm I'm asking and listening and whatnot. And they say, well, we're at war with Japan. And I ask people, what did that mean? They say, you know, hey, we're in war. <laughs> the war has started. We're in a big war. In other words, and now tapping into World War II. A special honor for a special lady. A 102-year-old Montgomery woman will receive the Congressional Gold Medal next week. That's the highest civilian honor bestowed by the U.S. Congress. WSFA 12 News anchor Sally Pitt shares the story of Rome Davis and why she's being recognized. At 102 years old, Rome Davis is the oldest living member of the 6888 Postal Directory Battalion. This was a battalion of 855 women who our United States military called upon to go forward in World War II and resolve the crisis of mail. There were 17 million pieces of mail that were trapped in a France warehouse, and so those serving on the front lines weren't connected with their loved ones back home. In less than three months, the unit resolved the mail crisis. It's for that hard work that Davis is being recognized. Maxwell Air Force Base Commander Aries Mincer will present Davis with the award. My path to service and the path for so many other women and so many other minorities were paved by women like Renee Davis. After her service with the 6888, Davis went on to become a leader in the fashion industry in New York, got her black belt when she was 80, and continued to work at a Winn-Dixie in Montgomery after she turned 100. Mincer says Davis is an inspiration to so many. When she served in the 6888 Battalion, she served in a segregated unit. And while she worked to resolve that crisis of mail along with 854 other women, um, they faced racism and sexism um, and, and, and um, in deplorable conditions in that warehouse, but yet they serve their nation. Davis will receive her Congressional Gold Medal Tuesday, the 74th anniversary of the executive order that integrated the armed forces. You can send a message of thanks to Davis. We have a link on WSFA.com. Sally Pitts, WSFA 12 News. The ceremony will be held at City Hall on Tuesday. It is a private ceremony, however.
Guaranteed income programs are becoming more common across the U.S. These temporary programs are largely being championed by progressive big city mayors. The hope is giving hundreds of dollars a month to people struggling financially will help reduce income inequality. For the Gulf States newsroom, Stephen Bisaha and Aubrey Uhas report on a new program in Georgia that's trying to reach people outside those big cities. Drive about two and a half hours south from Atlanta and you'll end up in the rural town of Cuthbert, Georgia. People here say it's a nice, quiet place to retire. It's also in one of the poorest parts of the state. The county's poverty rate is more than twice Georgia's, a state already known for high poverty. Which is why Tanika Acosta is standing outside the local Dollar General. She's an outsider with a flyer, but she's got a pitch that's hard to ignore. $850, no strings attached though, ma'am. Can I explain that to you? And that, that kind of makes them say, okay, what you talking about? Acosta is getting people to sign up for In Her Hands. It's a guaranteed income program that will give hundreds of low-income women in Georgia $850 a month for two years. Women, especially black women, face higher rates of poverty than men. So this program's hoping to address that. Word spreads fast here, so most of the women Acosta talks to have already heard of the program, including Wandalyn Blackman. Acosta helps black men complete her application. All done. Now you will receive an email. Uh, there's already coming. Okay. Now you're just waiting. Okay. You're all set. Thank you so much. Of course, of course. <laughs> Aubrey, there are dozens of cities trying to build the political will to make a guaranteed income federal policy. And they're doing that by running pilots in their own cities. Right. And while In Her Hands is doing that in Atlanta, they're also taking the unusual step of giving money to people in three rural counties here in southwest Georgia. Now, it's a lot cheaper living in a rural area like Cuthbert than Atlanta, but people in Atlanta often have access to a lot more help. Blackman says there also aren't many jobs here where you can make good money, and down here is it's no, it's no job. And it, it is a job. You ain't making that much of money. Logging used to be the big industry here decades ago, but not anymore. Lots of people who grew up here either leave for better jobs elsewhere or they come back once they retire. Turns out if you're going to do a rural guaranteed income, you're probably going to end up giving a lot of money to retirees who are struggling to get by on Social Security. Yeah, like Grandmother Everine Evans. She got the pitch for the program at the grocery store. Yeah, when she said $850, I said, wow. (laughs) Evans, who is 78 years old, knew she wanted to apply but wasn't sure how to complete the online application. So on a hot June day, she walks into the local technical college to get some help from inner hand staff. I love your dress. Well, thank you. I'm trying to keep cool. Right. Same. Same. The people running this pilot say there are over 300 studies, many overseas, showing cash payments are a big help for people's mental health as well as their wallets. But some new studies aren't so positive. In 2020, Harvard University researchers gave people living in poverty $2,000, and the researchers say they didn't see those same benefits. In fact, some people did worse financially and mentally after getting the cash. But the researchers say that's probably because it wasn't enough money to make a meaningful difference. The Georgia program is giving people a lot more money. Not $2,000, but $20,000 over the next two years. Hope Wallensack leads the Georgia Resilience and Opportunity Fund, which runs the pilot. She says that $20,000 is probably just the baseline of what's needed. We heard from women that they would probably spend just the first five to six months getting their head above water, whether that was um, catching up on their bills, paying down debt. Everine Evans says she plans on saving the money for hard times, which to some extent have already arrived with high inflation. 
Her only source of income is her social security check. So this would this would bump it up a lot to have eight fifty in old. <laughs> oh, you gonna make me do a dance? <laughs> I sure hope they pull my name, Jesus. The application for In Her Hands Rural Pilot closed in late June, and program leaders are onboarding participants so they can start receiving their guaranteed income soon. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Basaha. And I'm Aubrey Juhas in Cuthbert, Georgia. Um, globalization mandates, of course, from the most powerful white people, these blackouts, um, you have a totally energy-independent state like Texas, plenty of natural gas, oil, gasoline, coal. They were forced to keep up with the mandates and convert up to 20% of their power grid to green energy by 2021. Green energy being wind, solar, hydro, battery, etc. So that 20% freezes over. And the 80% that's left, that always has worked, the oil, the coal, the gas, uh, is not enough to supply the rest of the state. So they have to cut off certain parts of the grid to keep it working. And this is um, what's going to happen in 2025 when that green energy is mandated to be 50% of the grid. What happens when we have a snowstorm then? And it, what happens in Chicago and New York? I mean, where we, it's cold most of the year here. So um, it's big. This green energy thing that they've been pushing um, through this Green New Deal. And five years ago, this wanted to happen in Texas. Um, but they were forced to take fully, perfectly functioning parts of their grid and convert it to these green energy. And now that green energy freezes over and the rest of the grid is all vulnerable. Much of Texas is in the middle of its hottest summer ever. The heat has driven record-breaking electricity use as people blast their air conditioning, and that is straining the state's troubled electric grid. With August still ahead, many are wondering whether the system will hold up. Joining us to talk about it is Mose Bouchel. He is an energy and environment reporter from member station KUT in Austin. Welcome. Hi there. So what has the heat been like in Austin this year for you? Uh, it's been relentless. <laughs> you know, it, it started in the spring. We started getting triple digits in May with very little rain. And it's just basically stayed that way. Here in central Texas, we're now at around 45 days of triple digit heat this year. It stays warm through the night, you know, so you wake up and it's hot out first thing in the morning. This is a level of heat that the state's grid operator said it did not expect going into the summer. But summers are getting hotter here with climate change. So it's also kind of becoming more of the norm. Yeah, you know, it's hard not to think of the big winter blackout in Texas last year. Those memories were still quite fresh. Can you explain what the challenges are for the power grid in Texas now, given this extreme summer heat? You know, in some ways, it's it's not much different. In both cases, we have extreme weather putting massive energy demand on the state grid. Last year, it was the cold, and now it's the heat. Uh, and you got to remember that uh, Texas operates its own power grid, right? We have very few connections outside the state. So when demand goes up here, we can't pull power from many other places. And, and that means that three times already this year, the state's grid operator has had to call for conservation within Texas to avoid going into emergency operations. And that means, uh, you know, things like asking people to turn the temperature up on their AC, uh, stop running big appliances, uh, stuff like that. Mose, I can't imagine that goes over too well. No, it's it really doesn't. You know, there's there's still a lot of anger here over that 
that big blackout in the winter of 2021. Uh, people feel that the system failed them. And uh, they also are seeing their bills are a lot higher, like like we're seeing across the country. They're higher here because of natural gas prices, of course, but also uh, because of the costs from that last big blackout. So, you know, you see a lot of pushback on social media and elsewhere when people are asked to conserve. Although I should say that the uh, the group that operates the state grid, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, it says that these conservation calls are still helping. And all of this is happening as state regulators are trying to overhaul the electric grid, right? Yeah, yeah. These reforms, uh, they include weatherizing power plants, uh, also paying them to run more often. So these are costly changes, but state regulators say that they've helped keep the lights on. But then again, you know, people are, people are nervous, especially when those assurances are followed up by conservation requests. Yeah. So I have to ask, are these worries founded? Is there much likelihood of another blackout? Okay, so, you know, the conditions for rolling blackouts are high energy demand on one side and inadequate supply on the other side. So we've had high demand now. We've had it for months. If we get a situation where supply suddenly cuts off, maybe power plants break down, maybe there's low wind power production, uh, that's when uh, blackouts could start happening. Now, it's worth noting that so far this year, Texas Renewable Energy, its wind and solar resources have played a huge role in stopping that from happening. All right. Mose Bouchelle hosts the podcast The Disconnect, Power Politics and the Texas Blackout. Thank you so much for your reporting. Yeah, thank you. You dirt. We think you're dirt, Paul. Who is we? The West, all the superpowers, everything you believe in, Paul. They think you're dirt. They think you're dumb. You're worthless. I'm afraid I don't understand what you are saying, sir. Oh, come on. Don't bullshit me, Paul. You're the smartest man here. You got them all eating out of your hands. You can own this freaking hotel, except for one thing. You're black. You're not even a nigger. You're an African. Climate change, COVID, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine have strained global food supplies. And in countries where food scarcity was already an issue, these factors have proven devastating. The United Nations estimates that 828 million people were affected by hunger in 2021, with children being particularly hard hit. Every 11 seconds, one child dies from acute malnutrition. Samantha Power, Administrator of the United States Agency for International Development, or USAID, is on the line from Nairobi, Kenya. Welcome. Thank you so much. You've been meeting with local officials and aid workers uh, in northern Kenya today. What are they telling you about the conditions and, and what they need? It is a region, the Horn of Africa, which also includes Somalia and Ethiopia, where the farmers, the pastoralists, the communities have experienced four straight seasons of drought uh, in recorded history. And people are on the brink of really difficult circumstances. I mean, it really, either the world is going to mobilize like we never have before at this scale, or you are going to see tremendous suffering in the Horn of Africa, which really is the epicenter of that food crisis you mentioned. Are there farming practices or perhaps irrigation practices in places like Kenya to address the droughts that they're facing. We have to help individuals 
who are afflicted by successive droughts or floods or wildfires adapt. And like you said, mitigation is atop the list. It is also at USAID about getting drought-resistant seeds to farmers. And what we are trying to do in this crisis is get that kind of innovation in the hands of more small-scale farmers so that they are able to sow and reap their harvests along timelines that are very, very different than those they were working with, let's say, even you know, 10 years ago. On Saturday, Russia attacked the Ukrainian port city of Odessa, uh, violating an agreement it had signed with Ukraine and Turkey less than 24 hours earlier to create safe passage for the shipment of grain and fertilizer. So how optimistic are you about diplomatic efforts with Russia regarding these, you know, these ports um, that are so important for the movement of grain and fertilizer? What happened on Saturday with Russia's attack is outrageous. And I think now, as as President Zelensky said, um, nothing that Putin has agreed to has, has um, you know, ever been something that one could just rely upon. But this is really about the parties to the deal holding Russia's feet to the fire and insisting on uh, enforcement of this deal. I also think African leaders and African voices are very important uh, in pressing Putin to that effect. It is the citizens of sub-Saharan Africa, as well as parts of the Middle East, who are paying a very, very severe price for Putin's brutality and his use of food as a weapon of war. We mentioned 828 million um, people dealing with hunger. And what's even more heartbreaking is that 150 million have been added to that over the past two years. And that's reversing a decade of progress on reducing world hunger. What is it going to take to get back on track? You know, the fact that so much headway had been made in the previous decade in addressing global hunger should inspire us to redouble our efforts. And so I think we can take heart that we were actually making a major difference uh, before COVID hit and getting supply chains back on track will make a major difference in terms of food prices and, and fuel prices. And countries need to step up to help those who weren't large emitters of carbon over the years but who are paying the steepest price for the emissions that developed countries like the United States produced. That's Samantha Power, Administrator of the United States Agency for International Development. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you, Aisha. Because ugly white women used to say they got raped by niggas. <laughs> I didn't know a nigger raped me. Yeah, guys be going, hey, you sure? <laughs> yeah, they go round up some niggas, you know, like, oh, you were down last week, you know what to do, don't you? Well, come on down again, will you? We got to have a lineup. <laughs> well, it was a lot of fun unless you got picked. That was your ass. <laughs> they were originally called the Central Park Five. Five black and Latino teenagers between 14 and 16 years old convicted for the rape and assault of a white woman in New York City back in 1989. They're now often called the Exonerated Five because even though they all spent years in prison, they were innocent and were eventually freed as new evidence came to light. Well, there was actually a sixth 
teenage defendant, forgotten in much of the history. He, too, went to jail, but struck a plea deal to a lesser charge. His name is Stephen Lopez, and today, Manhattan's district attorney moved to vacate his conviction. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg joins us now live from Manhattan. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So what Stephen Lopez did plead guilty to was a robbery charge involving a male jogger. I want to start just by, to be clear, does your office believe he is not guilty, never was of that charge? Well, certainly as a matter of law, as you said, uh, you know, his indictment was uh, vacated. And so he's certainly, uh, like the rest of us, presumed innocent. As I said, in in court today, um, you know, and, and you just frame the history so well, uh, like the other five before him, here we had um, there have been some hair comparisons that were done um, that uh, now has been shown to be a kind of faulty analysis. So there's no physical hair evidence. Hair comparisons, no, so DNA evidence that, that's come exa- to yeah. Exactly. And there's no, so there's no physical evidence tying him to the charged conduct. And then as with the other five as well, um, you know the, the 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 crux of the of the of the case were were statements all given by you know very uh, young men boys uh, in fact uh, that have uh, you know since been recanted um, and certainly shouldn't form the basis so that that was the evidence and that evidence is now all um, uh, certainly I think been. Um, rightly questioned. And that's where we are today. And that's why we went to court. Right. So why, and I, this is to the best of your knowledge, because I know you only took over as Manhattan DA earlier this year, but why was his case not vacated years ago when the other five were? You know, you're right that I I do not know um, the answer to that. Um, I'm going to do what lawyers uh, uh, should seldom do, which is speculate a little bit. uh, And that is just that, you know, procedurally, the posture was different and that the others went to trial uh, and were convicted by 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 juries, and it, uh, Mr. Lopez, as you said, albeit to a different charge, but he plea, his his conviction was by plea, and so yeah. that that may have been why it was went down a different track. I and, don't know though. And I gather this um, this came back in front of your office due to Mr. Lopez himself that he reintroduced himself to your office uh, last year. Exactly. Huh. And asked that his conviction be reviewed, and and that's brought us to where we are today. Exactly. You know, I was looking, sir, at your bio. Um, You would have been a teenager yourself, a a black kid growing up in New York City when the Central Park Five rape happened. Does it feel personal to you to to throw out this conviction on your watch? Well, you know, first and foremost, it's it's mostly about, you know, Mr. Lopez, right? He's he's the one who was uh, wrongfully convicted and served time in jail. But but certainly uh, it is not lost on me uh, and does uh, touch me. That uh, you know, about the same age as as all um, six, uh, and as Mr. Lopez, and someone who grew up not far from Central Park. In fact, I had to pass Central Park every day, uh, going from my home to school, um, and went in Central Park to do things that kids would do, like play basketball. Um, and and that's not lost on me at all. And in fact, I think for um, a generation of us, uh, kind of, we, we grew up in the shadow of this case. Um, uh, and so that is not lost on me. And I think it's a significant moment for for certainly my office, certainly for Mr. Lopez, but also more broadly um, um, for these reasons. Yeah. I mean, I, you're, I hear you saying this is all about Mr. Lopez today, and that's absolutely right. But it sounds like you see a different story there, a, a bigger story um, about racism and teenagers of color and the criminal justice system. Okay, it, the, the, the backdrop of this 
um, is significant, you know, for the, the history of the office, you know, Mr. Morgenthau before me, um, you know, uh, moving to vacate in the court, vacating the convictions of the other five, you know, the impact of what a, a, a wrongful conviction, any conviction, but certainly a wrongful conviction on one's employment, one's housing, um, one's family relationships. Yes, these are all profound issues that are bound up in our criminal justice system um, that I think are, are underscored and illustrated by this matter. Um, to bring it back to Stephen Lopez, he did serve prison time like the other five. Unlike the other five, he did not receive any settlement money. They were awarded $41 million uh, back in 2014. Um, Mr. Lopez is now 48. Is there anything you would like to say to him today? Well, you know, he was he was in court um, uh, and conveyed um, to him and his lawyer for first the, the, the appreciation for this collaborative process, the way we review um, these matters here in the DA's office is a collaborative, um, open process, and, and, and engaging in that with them, doing it in good faith was, was how we got in part to this day. Um, and then, of course, to acknowledge, um, you know, the harm that flowed from the convictions years ago and some of the collateral consequences I just mentioned generally, um, I think, don't know, but I think applied here as well. So um, I had an opportunity to, to address his, his counsel um, and, and to be with him in court today. And so um, uh, conveyed just, you know, uh, an understanding to the extent I can of the profound impact that something like this has on one's life. Did you have the chance to speak to him directly? Uh, you know, uh, I shook his hand as he left court. I generally do not speak directly to people who are represented by counsel uh, w without them, as, as, I, as I, I can't and should not. Um, but I did shake his hand, had an opportunity to say things, you know, you know, you know, um, publicly uh, that that um, um, uh, you know were about this, and then had, did have an opportunity to really speak with his his lawyer, and his lawyer spoke very eloquently on the record, um, and obviously he's gotten to know Mr. Lopez um, based on that relationship, and so he was able to say some things on the record that were were quite personal, and 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 um, you know I heard them, and, and so I think. Uh, it was publicly expressed, and I did have an opportunity to the extent that it's you know permitted. Yeah, I, I mean, there's obviously nothing that compensates someone for for losing uh, years of their life to prison for a crime that they did not commit. But to the the bigger question of does it feel like justice has now been served at some level? Yes, I mean, I think, and I I thank the court for the courts. Uh, you know, we made the motion, but the court to you know review and grant the motion, and I think that. The, Yes, this was a day uh, where justice was served, and, and, and importantly, and I think we're right to both focus on Mr. Lopez, but by extension, for the greater public, right? When something like this happens, I think we think, as we should first, about the person whose conviction is being vacated. I think we should also be thinking when we do this about, um, you know, often means that, that, that someone else was not held accountable who should have been here. We, we, that person stepped forward years ago. Um, and is incarcerated. But we also should be talking about what it means for faith in our system. I've been a prosecutor for 20 years, um, and, and we need witnesses and victims to have trust and faith in the system. And I think uh, an action like today's um, advances that, that, that trust that we need to safeguard public safety. Alvin Bragg, thank you. Thank you. Is Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, whose office has moved to overturn the conviction of a sixth man, Stephen Lopez, related to an infamous 1989 rape in New York City. Since 2018, Amazon's been showing customers a new way to shop where you can just grab and go. 
It's Amazon Go. A lot of people feel they're always being listened to and watched. Are they wrong? So-called smart devices are pretty nosy and invasive, listening, watching, and always alert. They can provide convenience and security. But how secure is the information they absorb about us? Amazon, which we should note is an NPR underwriter, has revealed that they've shared video and information from their ring cameras with law enforcement officials without consent or warrant. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey is investigating the matter, and in a response to his inquiry, the company said it provided video footage 11 times so far this year when an emergency request was made. We're joined now by the Democratic senator from Massachusetts, Ed Markey. Senator, thanks so much for being with us. No, great to be with you. Thank you. In that letter to you, I gather, Senator, they said that more than 2,000 law enforcement agencies and more than 450 fire departments are enrolled in what they call its Neighbor Safety app. Uh, and they have an online portal where they can request the data in cases of life-threatening emergencies. Are you concerned about this? Yeah. And those numbers, by the way, that you just mentioned are a five-fold increase in law enforcement on its platform just since 2019. So this is turning into a partnership between Amazon and the police Mm. of the United States of America. And Ring revealed that it has shared user recordings with law enforcement through a process that does not require user consent. Amazon says, though, that it provides that information only when when there's imminent danger of death or serious physical injury. If it if it helps save someone, does that make it all right? The standard should be, has there been a process that guarantees that the American people are allowed to know that there has been a false choice made between their safety and their privacy? But if this information is compromised, it should have to go through the same legal process that any other search of uh, private property would have to go through in our country. Uh, It just can't be an exception because it's available. In other words, police should get a warrant. The police should have to get a warrant in the same way they do in any other uh, situation. And if it's an emergency, a judge can issue an emergency warrant. But we have protections in place, and all of those protections should be applied to this new technology. Are, are, are you concerned about this technology being used for surveillance rather than emergency now or, or in the future? Or is that to be determined? Yes. My fear is that we are turning into a surveillance society and that everyone just has to go along with us. And it has just become increasingly difficult for the public to move, to assemble, to converse in public without being tracked and recorded. I wonder, Senator Markey, in any of the information that you've gotten so far, if you've received evidence that that this technology has been helpful in in deterring or resolving crimes. Um, I don't think that's the question. I think the question is whether or not the police are obtaining the proper legal permission. Otherwise, it's just a false choice that's set up where all of a sudden you allow the police to do whatever they want in the United States just because they're intending to do a good thing. That's not our standard. That's China's standard. 
Let me ask you about the technology. I, I mean, our family, for example, doesn't have smart speakers because we don't trust them. But we sure do have smartphones. And every now and then my phone will say, here's your answer, Scooter, you know, to indicate that they're tuned in, even when we haven't asked them anything. It's comic and chilling all at the same time. Exactly. And the more sophisticated these technologies become, the more protections we have to put in place. I don't think our policies in our country have caught up with yet. And that's why I've introduced legislation to stop law enforcement from accessing sensitive information um, about us. Do you suggest citizens just not opt into that technology and, and until you feel you and your colleagues can resolve the law? You know, my, my feeling is that people right now should not be excessively trusting of Amazon or of the technology. Right now, you have to opt in as a Ring user to set up end-to-end encryption so that Amazon does not have access to your videos. I would encourage users to go to their settings and review that option right now as they're listening in order to give themselves the maximum protection. Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts. Senator, thanks so much for being with us. Great to be with you. We asked Amazon about the issues raised by this investigation and if they provided data from other Amazon devices. We didn't get a specific response. A Ring spokesperson told us this, quote, Ring doesn't give the government or anyone else unfettered access to customer data or video. Just like other companies, Ring on rare occasions provides information to law enforcement on an emergency basis when there's an imminent danger of death or serious physical injury, such as a kidnapping or an attempted murder. Dedicated members of the legal team review these requests, and we do not always provide data in response. Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty by Dorothy Roberts. Read for you by Shana Small. Preface. In the late 1980s, I began to notice news stories about prosecutions of women for using drugs while pregnant. District attorneys across the country concocted an assortment of charges to punish these women for fetal crimes. Child neglect, distribution of drugs to a minor, assault with a deadly weapon, and attempted murder. How did a public health problem become a criminal justice matter to be solved by locking up women instead of providing them with better health care? I was sure of three things about the prosecutions. They primarily targeted black women... They punished these women for having babies, and they were a form of both race and gender oppression. Yet at the time, mainstream reproductive rights organizations such as Planned Parenthood and National Abortion Rights Action League largely ignored the role of racism in these fetal crime charges. With the overturn of Roe v. Wade, abortion is already, or soon will be, illegal in more than half the country, which means pregnancy outcomes will be increasingly regulated not by healthcare professionals, but by law enforcement. NPR's Sandia Dirks reports. Haley McMahon has been watching the response to the end of abortion rights, and she keeps hearing the same phrase. You can't ban abortion, only safe abortion. McMahon studies abortion access, and she says while women will certainly die because of the Supreme Court's decision, 
This idea of women dying from back alley abortions is stuck in the past. It is true for the pre-Roe period, but not necessarily for the post-Roe period. That's because medicine has advanced. Now there are self-managed abortions, pills people take to safely terminate a pregnancy from home. That's why she says the symbol of this moment is not wire hangers. The really significant concern is about the legal dangers of self-managed abortion. A more accurate symbol might be prison bars. Our country in the past 50 years has decided that the police state is the way to respond to public health crises, to mental health crises, to poverty. That's Dana Sussman with National Advocates for Pregnant Women, NAPW. They represent women who are facing charges related to losing a pregnancy. The mother is blamed for the pregnancy loss and then criminalized for that loss without really any science or medicine backing it up. Sussman says in a lot of places, this criminalization of pregnancy has already been happening. There's two factors behind that. One, a raft of post-Roe feticide laws enacted over the past few decades, which made a fetus a new kind of crime victim. These laws were passed ostensibly to protect pregnant people who are extra vulnerable to domestic violence. But Sussman says that's not what happened. What these laws are then used for is actually to criminalize the pregnant person herself. And in fact, these laws don't make pregnant people any safer. The second factor was the war on drugs, which ushered in our current era of mass incarceration and spread dangerous narratives, especially about Black people, like the idea that Black women were giving birth to a generation of so-called crack babies, an entirely fictional racist myth. The first experiment in this area were primarily drug-using Black women who were charged with crimes in relationship to their fetuses, child abuse, child neglect. They were charged when their babies were born healthy or when they lost the pregnancy from likely natural causes. UC Irvine law professor Michelle Goodwin, who wrote the book Policing the Womb, says it's not because Black women were using drugs at higher rates than white women. The result was that Black women who suffered from stillbirths were being policed and ultimately were being arrested. In 1989, at the Medical University of South Carolina, staff working in concert with local law enforcement started drug testing pregnant women that they deemed suspicious without their knowledge. Over the course of five years, 30 women were arrested for things like child abuse. Every one of the arrests were all Black women with the exception of one patient. And on her medical chart, the nurse who was in charge wrote, lives with Negro boyfriend. That's by no means an isolated case. Goodwin calls it symptomatic of the new Jane Crow. In the 80s and 90s... A Black woman was 10 times more likely to be reported to police and social services on matters related to her pregnancy than were white women. Data collected by NAPW says to this day the people most prosecuted for issues during pregnancy are poor, rural women of color. And it's not just about drug use. In 2010, in Indiana, a Chinese immigrant named Bebe Shui was pregnant when she tried to commit suicide. She survived. The baby did not. She was charged with attempted feticide and murder. Here's NAPW's Dana Sussman again. Attempting suicide is, of course, not criminal behavior. Sussman points out that in most states, using drugs is also not illegal. All of a sudden, the state can charge you with crimes that do not exist if you were not pregnant. 
And now Sussman says a lot more women will be forced into pregnancy. And there's no way to tell the difference between self-managed abortions and miscarriages. What I anticipate is that prosecutors will sweep in anyone who is experiencing a pregnancy loss that they deem, quote, suspicious. And Black women are twice as likely to experience miscarriage and stillbirth than white women. Abortion researcher Haley McMahon says there are still things that can be done to curb the criminalization of pregnancy. I continue to be flabbergasted that we are not having a a national conversation about decriminalizing self-managed abortion. McMahon says it's key to understand that the conversation about pregnancy and abortion is not just about health and physical survival. Increasingly, it's about prison and policing. Sandhya Dirks, NPR News. Well, I don't want to be the one to break your heart, but Sunshine's from California. Yeah, a California dreamboat. No. Sunshine is from California. He's a Californian. Uh-huh. It's about a suspicious person, possible prowler, and I've got to call her on the line now. At just before 11 p.m. one evening in August 2012, a woman called the sheriff's department. Deputy Luke Burhalter and his partner were dispatched to the scene. They walked up to the house but didn't identify themselves or call out to the homeowner. Burhalter drew his gun. Like I said, my gun was in front of me at a low ready. I don't recall how far my arms were extended. Something pushed down on my gun. Something made contact with my gun. Um, And as that happened, my gun discharged. This is what Burhalter later told investigators. As soon as the as my firearm discharged, um, I think I said, oh shit, or something like that, I realized that a person was there. And then I was able to see that it was a woman and that she was she was still standing, but she had she was leaning, she was bent over at the waist. And I, I think she was maybe holding her abdomen or holding her arm. He had shot the homeowner who called police. The woman was wounded on her chest and arm and was taken to the hospital for emergency surgery. The department called Burhalter's actions, quote, careless and imprudent, but he was not fired or suspended. He only received a written reprimand to go in his file. The light discipline Burhalter received is a trend, according to a KPBS analysis of 475 police use of force incidents. In fact, more than 97% of the time, Officers received no discipline whatsoever, the analysis shows. And when officers were disciplined, it was sometimes for actions other than shooting or using force against a suspect. And most of the time, they were back on the street after short suspensions, if they were suspended at all. For example, San Diego Sheriff's Deputy Kyle Klein was disciplined after kicking a man in the face during an arrest. However, his discipline was for failing to document it. And San Diego police officer Elliot Simon, who tackled a man and knocked him unconscious, was suspended for one day for failing to turn on his body camera. How many people ever suspended or disciplined in any meaningful way? Not a lot. DeRay McKesson is a civil rights activist with Campaign Zero. Imagine if you had a job where it literally was just impossible to get in trouble to be held accountable. That's what policing is. Experts say there are a number of reasons why officers so often escape serious punishment, including the way police policies are written and how investigations are done. But topping the list is the strength of police unions, says San Diego attorney Eugene Iredale. 
the power of the police unions, uh, contract negotiations in which disciplinary procedures are negotiated, and the natural tendency of an organization and people to try to protect its own. For whatever reason, they get due process plus. The San Diego Police Officers Association didn't respond to a request for comment. Police investigations of use of force have historically been done internally within the department. Way too often you'll have investigating internal affairs officers who have a deep identification with and sympathy for the officer whose conduct is under investigation. That said, San Diego law enforcement agencies are instituting reforms, especially after protests over police violence swept the country in 2020. The departments announced in April that they'll investigate each other when an officer shoots and kills someone. So the sheriff's department will investigate a police shooting and vice versa. Police use of force expert Travis Norton welcomes the change, but says departments already did thorough investigations. And I understand that, that our critics would say, hey, you guys can't police yourselves. Well, in my 24 years, there's not this big thing covering up stuff. We don't want that. We don't want that. That is not what we want. We want to maintain legitimacy with our communities. It's so important, especially now. Some activists have long called on District Attorney Summer Steffen to charge officers for past shootings. But she says there is rarely a reason to do so. In the time that I've been here, I, I feel that every single case has received our full attention, our best experience, and that we've tried to provide as transparent of a process as possible. But I think the voices should keep coming. You know, if I lost a loved one um, to uh, a police officer, I would want more answers and probably would never stop asking them. Claire Tregesser, KPBS News. In an emailed statement, an SDPD official said while officers are not perfect, the documents reveal their professionalism and courage during incredibly dangerous situations. Just maybe think of me once in a while. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Cincinnati police officer is under investigation tonight after being caught on her body cam using a racial slur. This was aimed at a high school student outside of her police cruiser. Now, this isn't the first time a CPD officer has been accused of using such language. But as Local 12's James Pilcher tells us, it's been difficult to make any suspensions or severe discipline stick. In early April, Cincinnati police officer Rose Valentino was recorded using the N-word, referring to high school students walking by her car. Oh, I hate him so much. Oh, I hate this world. The language was quickly condemned by both city leaders and leaders of the Cincinnati Police Union. But it isn't the first time CPD officers have been caught using such language. In 2002, then-officer Patrick Caton was suspended for using the N-word. He had previously been on trial but acquitted of assault in the death of Roger Owensby. His suspension was overturned. Legal experts say cities like Cincinnati don't have specific measures for racial slurs, instead lumping them in with profanity, coarse language, and rudeness to the public. Cincinnati's police union contract and discipline procedures don't make that distinction. And the maximum an officer can get is a 7 to 10 day suspension 
for his or her fourth offense. Ohio State law professor and professional mediator Sarah Cole says that makes it difficult to make suspension stick. Discipline in this context isn't intended to be punitive. It's intended to be educational. Um, it's intended to be progressive. So that if this is the first offense of this officer, um, it's very hard to justify serious discipline or termination for the use even of a racial epithet. In 2018, two other officers were caught on camera using the N-word. Dante Hill, who is African-American, and Dennis Barnett, who is white, were suspended for seven days. Both were revoked by an independent arbitrator. Hill sued the city for lost wages and a damaged reputation in federal court in a case that is still ongoing after a jury deadlocked last week. Ohio State's Cole says any structural changes will need to come when the city and union negotiate their next contract. But I do think that um, employers want to discipline more harshly for the use of racially or sexually charged language. And I think that's been true for some time. James Pilcher, Local 12 News. Officer Valentino will continue to get paid well under investigation, but her police powers have been removed, including her badge and her gun. I can feel it deep inside This black nigger's pride I have no fear when I say And I say it every day Every nigger is a star Every nigger is a star Who will deny that you and I and every nigger is a star. It's been alleged by the police department that Mr. Anthony Mangiapane uh, was uh, standing in a doorway, aimed a rifle at an individual uh, that had a, that had some kind of laser on it, and um, you know may, may have not been able. Uh, and, and made a statement to the individual who was a, a African-American and called him in the N-word and said to get moving and fired off three shots across uh, the street from where this individual was. Um, a witness heard the gunshots, and, and apparently the police came on the scene uh, and had a literally uh, this Mr. Majapani barricaded himself in a business and later surrendered himself at the behest of his girlfriend that was in the business at the time um, with Mr. Majapani. Uh, in addition, they, 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 uh, after bringing him into custody, they had a warrant that went inside and uh, they found a safe that, uh, that contained some paraphernalia like uh, some grenades, M203 grenade shell in the safe that was located. And also, they found other host of weapons, pistols, shotguns, AR-15s, rifles, um, all of this and more uh, in Nazi memorabilia, including uh, what seems to be a German Luger pistol. Interesting enough, um, this is a hate crime, and, and it's it, under the statute, this is a classic case. So our office today um, had charged with uh, assault with a dangerous weapon, a four-year felony, felony firearm, a two-year uh, that would be served, ethnic intimidation, a two-year felony, and uh, resisting, obstructing, and assaulting a police officer, a two-year felony. We did not charge on the assault with intent to murder because if it had a laser and he was shot, uh, you know, through taking three shots, it may not have been to kill or injure, but 
firing at somebody in that direction uh, and using those statements is enough for this office to uh, uh, allege that these offenses have occurred and we intend to prove them at trial. However, like any other case that comes through the Macomb County Prosecutor's Office, you are always presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Two quick ones, and I will let you go, and I really thank you for the time, Pete. This said it occurred around 11.30 p.m., but he went back into a business. Not that it's really germane. Do you know what business he was in or what he was doing? No, I don't know what the nature of the business was. I know that there was automobiles in this business, but apparently he was living in the business. That's what it's been alleged at this time, that he was living in the business with his girlfriend in this business. I want to do a shout-out, though, for uh, – Visiting Judge Michael Massaroni set an appropriate bond uh, because, let's face it, I mean, we see so many gun cases and shooting cases here in the Macomb County Prosecutor's Office that the appropriate bond needs to be, you know, made very apparent from the beginning that this is zero tolerance in Macomb County. We're not standing for this. These crimes of hate and or weapons will not be tolerated. It's a zero tolerance here in this prosecutor's office, and it should be throughout the entire county. Here you see James Craig Anderson in a hotel parking lot as he first comes into view in the lower right corner of the screen. This is after he was beaten, according to law enforcement officials. He staggers into the headlights of Mr. Deadman's truck. The truck backs up and surges forward suddenly running right over the defenseless man. Take a look again as the approaching headlights glow on Anderson's shirt, then disappears under the truck. According to police, Deadman, with two teenage girls as his passengers, drove to a local McDonald's meeting up with the rest of the group. There, according to witnesses interviewed by police, he said, I ran that nigger over. Dozens of parents and family members showing up here at the Ripley Police Department to make sure that stiff charges were made against the driver. It was this video posted to social media that enraged parents in Ripley. They say it shows a white driver threatening to run down African-American children on their bike Sunday. The driver can be heard using the N-word, which we beeped out. Miriam Similton Anderson represents the parents. She tells me simple assault charges and more are coming. We're exuberant that they've included the crime of hate because there will be another body of persons to investigate it and to make sure that he comes to justice like he should be. Parents tell me it happened here on Cooper Street on Sunday. They filed charges against this man, Mark Hall of Ripley. He was booked into the Tippa County Jail Tuesday on nine counts of simple assault and attempt of physical menace to create fear. I went to his house, but no one was home. Clarence Holmes' son was one of the kids on the bikes. He could have hurt those guys. He could have killed somebody or anything. But he didn't have no regard for those, for those them black lives that was out there. Willie Hall's son was also among the children in the video. We're living in a time that's supposed to be advanced. We're supposed to be a progressive people, but we're still dealing with the same things that we were dealing with back when my grandparents and my great-grandparents were around. 
in Ripley, Mississippi. Tom Dees, Fox 13 News. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, July 30, 2022. So I have been told our 20th program of the month on the counter-racist grind for the summer of 2022. Uh, today's, or the number uh, folks would like to call in, compensatory call in, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. July 30, 2022, so I've been told. This is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, counter-racist suggestions to share. Certainly not for spectators. Uh, Let's see. Things to share before... We get to listeners, folks who dialed in. Much obliged for all the folks who, I guess, listen on other outlets, YouTube or wherever else. Uh, people post our content wherever you download uh, or listen from. Uh, the cows is current. Sometimes people, I don't know where they're listening from, but they will uh, hear archives. We've been on for 13 years, so they'll be listening to content from seven years ago, five years ago, four years ago, and they'll think that we've gone off the air. Uh, and I have to remind them and give them all the links. Uh, the easy way, you can just follow social media. You don't have to have an account, I don't believe. You can just follow. I think all of our social media sites are public uh, on Twitter at Until Justice, on Facebook. The problem is white people. Pages public, so you can always follow, have updates for uh, the program schedule and what have you. Uh, this information is only if you are looking for constructive information, not to grouse and gripe and argue with non-white people. I don't do any of that. In fact, you can look at my followers on Twitter and see I am not there to converse with the Twitterverse. Anywho, follow social media. We are current. Get times for upcoming programs and all of that good business. Uh, Next, we are listener-supported counter-racist radio. Invest if you think the cows is constructive. Uh, You can hit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes.blogspot.com PayPal button is in the top right corner. You'll also see the links for Venmo, Cash App, uh, PayPal as well. Cash App address cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows enormous thanks to all of the investors uh, who have contributed kept the cows on the air for 13 plus years 
hopefully worthy of your time and energy. Also, thanks to all the folks who shared Cal's content, listeners, family members. I think some folks have said they got dirty looks. People threatened to stop speaking to them after, you know, recommending this content. Thank you for trying and sharing. Much obliged as well to listeners who have shared uh, different books, lots of Buffalo resources and books that I needed to prepare. We did 20 programs, so that was a lot of prep work. Much obliged for the folks who uh, used their time and energy uh, to do a little sleuthing uh, and sharing with Gus T. Hopefully it has been worthy of your time and energy. Uh, you can also hit the wish list at Amazon.com. Uh, it's under Gus T. Renegade. Much obliged for all the folks who have nabbed an item or 12 over the years that we have been on the air. Hopefully the cows has offered constructive, accurate information on what white supremacy racism is, what it means to be white. Incidentally, the people who follow on social media, wherever it is, who despise the cows and have for years, you should invest too. We're listener supported. Even if you are listening, that old no count coon Gus doesn't know what he's talking about. No count Negro man. You're listening. You should invest too. So you can grouse and name call and all of that and just venture over, nab some things from the wish list, mash the PayPal button because you are listening. Much obliged. Now, we had David Hauk on the program. We talked about his brand new book, Black Bodies in the River. David Hauk down in Tallahassee, Florida, Florida State. Fannie Lou Hamer, scholar, literally, that is in the title for his position at FSU. Fannie Lou Hamer, scholar. His research interests include the black freedom movement his book black bodies in the river Fannie Lou Hamer is a major character Stokely Carmichael major character John Lewis J Edgar Hoover Lyndon Johnson Ella Baker I'll stop right there all major and the FBI in general all major characters in his book Black Bodies in the River when he was a guest on the program I said man that is a major omission for you to not have Cointel Pro in your book sir he said well ooh, ooh. and I read from Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly's Racial Matters and he talked about what year did this program begin and woo 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 and ee. he said he had Dr. O'Reilly's book Racial Matters but he hadn't read it. Now I said then I have to think now how much of an omission is that? Man he is super fortunate that Dr. O'Reilly's book is big enough and because we've done 20 programs this month been doing other things been reading about Joseph G. Christopher and Buffalo and all the rest plus I had to read Black Bodies in the River and everything else so if we had maybe done fewer programs had more time I thought about it hey read Racial Matters but time is right and exact if I had read Racial Matters before he came on the program 
that we probably would have started right there. You not include, like, do you not know about Cointelpro? Are you ignorant about this? Fannie Lou Hamer scholar, are you ignorant about Cointelpro? Oh, you do know about this. You just didn't include this in the book. I went back. I'm going to give you my exact thought process. Cause, and this is the third time that I've been in this position, at least this year. Where we've had a white author on the program. Another reason why it's got to be white guests only, because I would never want to do this with non-white authors. With these white guests, uh, Jay, uh, it was Jay Russell Hawkins. He wrote about Jay Strom Thurmond in South Carolina, neglected to include this is a child raping racist. F for the book not including that major act of racism we talked about with that with him on the program we've had all these white buffalo scholars on they don't know about joseph g christopher they write about buffalo racism history of the town do not include a word about the 22 caliber killer i've said consistently you can take it either or racism ignorance maybe both not acceptable either way dr hauck no inclusion. You have a whole book, 1964 Freedom Summer, Fannie Lou Hamer and all that. No mention of Cointelpro. I said Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly has a whole chapter on Freedom Summer. I went back. I said, man, we need to do more Cointelpro. I need to, you know, go back, refresh on this for listeners and ask some of the folks who wrote about Cointelpro now what do you think about this somebody writes a book about all this and they don't have a sentence about Cointelpro I'm trying to look for scholarship material Dr. O'Reilly's book pops up a few others that I'm familiar with but there's not like a lot of scholarship the way that they have tons of books on like Freedom Summer right they have lots and lots of books that come out on that more to come you give me a moment, I can think of the O.J. Simpson. You give me a moment, I can think of some other subject matter where they just have tons. They just write on, write on, write on. More material coming out, you know, every other day. Cointelpro is so important. They don't have lots of scholarship on that. They don't have lots of updates. I said, man, this whole time I'm trying to avoid going back to Dr. O'Reilly. Interviewed him a few times. Why don't you go back and just talk to Dr. O'Reilly? I already have his number. I call him. He answers on the second ring. I, Dr. O'Reilly, this is Gus. Who? So you were a guest on our program. We talked about racial matters and Nixon's piano. It was a long time ago. But He says, oh, yes, I remember you, that strange coon. Yes. Mm-hmm. I say, okay. So we had Dr. Houck on the program, Black Bodies in the River, Fannie Lou Hamer. He mentions all these people, Jagger Hoover, blah, blah, blah. No mention of Cointelpro. What do you think? He says, hmm. He looks online as we're speaking. He looks, wow, this guy's lots of credentials. He seems solid. He says, eh, I don't know. Can't defend him. I mean, that's 1964, so that's not quite when they're doing their really dastardly stuff yet. You know, I don't know. I haven't read the book. I don't know him either, this guy, right? So I says, well, I don't know. I have him on the phone. Uh, Oh, no, 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 no. Let me tell you, this was the sequence. I said, I read him your passage about the sheriffs in 1964 where Hoover pressured the white sheriff because we know about your history with Negro women and sexual intercourse, cowbell. So we're going to pressure him to give us the details about James Cheney and these two white boys who were killed in Neshoba County. 
he said, Dr. O'Reilly, he said, dang, I didn't even remember that. I said, me either. I totally forgot that was even in the book. I had to go back and reread this. I had to give him the page number. He wrote this book like 40 years ago, up thereabouts. I had to give him the page number. I give him the page number, 173, memory serves. Yeah, 173, I think. Uh, so he flips to it, 173. Oh, yep, there it is. Memory immediately jogged. What does he say? He says, well, you know, it is the FBI. So sometimes, you know, they do lie. So sometimes you kind of have to, you know, take it with a grain of salt metaphor. Pause. Now, that is true they do lie a lot race soldiers do lie a lot hey that's a major part of the cointel pro campaign deception so that is true however he immediately says in this case i tend to think that this is true this sheriff and his legend of sexual activity with negro women and that's how it's written in the book in quotes now he continues he says uh i believe that this is true because this is part of a larger pattern he says people think about the catholic church and all these reports widespread all over the world and their abuse of children the catholic church and blah 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 we talked about that in buffalo with the 22 caliber killer this week he says but man i mean that's you know widespread throughout the culture so these sheriffs yes they would have reputations for abusing, raping Negro women, but this would include raping Negro children, boys and girls, he said. Now that part is not in the book, nor in the footnotes. Anyway, so he says all of this, and now I'm really like, I can, major act of racism, you can call it ignorance either or, Dr. Hauk not including this, and anybody else who writes about these people, and they don't mention Pro, especially, you have a book, you are the Fannie Lou Hamer scholar, you have this book and you don't read it. Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, for anybody who calls in today, we talk so much, Dr. Welsing, Dr. Welsing, Dr. Welsing. Dr. Welsing said, reading is more important than watching television. Dr. Welsing got very specific one time. We had people call in and ask on this program, hey, Dr. Welsing. What one book or what, you know, five books should we read, you know, you think are really important. In the ISIS papers, she was very specific. What books do you need to read before she even gets to, you should read Neely Fuller Jr.'s United Independent Compensatory Code System concept. She does quote him. If you don't understand racism, everything else will confuse you. I'm shortening it right there just for brevity. But she does quote him in the dedication at the very beginning of the book. But before she says, you should read this book. She says, no persons 
who classify themselves as white living in the area of the world referred to as the United States of America or for that matter in any other area of the world should presume to tell any black person or any other non-white person what racism is or is not until they have read completely Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly's Racial Matters, the FBI secret file on black America, 1960 to 1972. No black person living in the area of the world referred to as the United States of America should discourse on racism or deny the conspiratorial dimensions of the local and global system of racism until he, she has read Racial Matters completely. People get to talking loud and tough about Dr. Welsing and the ISIS papers. We'll do it today. When you dial in, star 61, share. Have you read the ISIS papers? And if so, have you read Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly's Racial Matters? It's been my experience when I've asked victims this question before. The answer has been no. It's it's not even on page one. It's before page one. It's the dedication. You don't even have to read anything in the ISIS papers. You can just pick it up on the shelf in the bookstore and just see the dedication. Oh, she says, check this book out. Hmm, what a title. Secret file on black people. I'll read that one. My experience is that that has not happened. Anywho, so I'm talking to Dr. Riley. He says all this. I said, man, uh, can we have you back on the program to go ahead and do racial matters for a second time? He says, sure. So we'll have him back on Wednesday. Man, I, we don't even do this. We've been on the air for 13 years, which he took note of. But in 13 years, we do not have guests on the program to talk about the same book again that does not happen only reason that this is happening how much of an omission act of racism if you want to call it that is it for a white scholar like Dr. Hauk or anybody else to write about racism white supremacy it's 1960s or any other time really and not mention Cointelpro Wednesday we will do this again in fact even I had to think about this like it was a moment of reflection like wow we had Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly on the program we've been on the air for over 13 years we've done well over 2,000 programs Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly the first time we talked about this book that was in April of 2009 that was our first 20 programs we heard a segment from Dorothy Roberts killing the black body in the news segments today. Dorothy Roberts, the first time she was a guest on the program when we discussed killing the black body, that was August 2009, our first 50 programs. No wasting time, right to work, context of white supremacy. In fact, even more detail I had to go back and remember 
I said, ooh, with this sort of thing, I have to go back to make sure that I do not ask any questions that were asked that first time around. So there is no repetition. This is all what did we not get like that incident with the sheriff in Neshoba County, Mississippi. So I'm going back to that episode. Uh, It's in the archives. If you haven't heard it, I'll listen to it again before Wednesday. I'm going back and I remember promoting and saying like I shouldn't even have to say anything other than hey Dr. Welsing said we should read this guy's book it's in the ISIS papers at the very beginning and the title my goodness I remember I shared that with someone who said they've read the ISIS papers more than once titled racial matters their response was oh man you know these white people they write all these lame old books racial matters they're not saying system of white supremacy see you know because you got to do your homework see they come in here and they just try to play these old word games or they're not even trying to share the information I guess I would have maybe said the same thing if I didn't know the full title of the book or if I hadn't seen the cover of the book uh, which has Dr. King on it some versions Uh, Or if I hadn't read the book, this is a case where really, though, hey, you can judge this book by the cover. All you have to do is look at the front cover. And I think, oh, man, this looks constructive. I will read this one. No confusion. (laughs) Just look at the cover. It's on my social media no confusion. But I do remember that thinking, dang, you don't recognize this from Dr. Wells. And you said you read the book many times and it was that kind of condescension like oh you old dumb nigra wasting your time talking to somebody about racial matters incidentally even that title racial matters racial matters is in quotes very quickly when you read the book you will see this is the name of their file on negroes also I remember if you go back and listen to that episode so this is 2009 oh my god you want to talk about worthy of great pity right up there with it being almost 2025 and they're celebrating midnight basketball in Atlanta for the Negras almost as pitiful as that uh, they talked oh man maybe freaking midnight goofy midnight basketball made me lose my uh, train of thought oh god how could I forget Almost as pitiful as that, the goofy midnight basketball in Atlanta. When Dr. O'Reilly was here the first time, April 2009, listen to some of the folks who dialed in with questions. Not, oh, wow, Dr. Welsing said we should read your book. Wow, and I asked him about that at the beginning. Oh, yeah, the Bill First 20, matter of fact, put that in full context. That was our first 20 episodes on there. This is some insight as to why I really don't care what any of your critiques are like forever. If we're on the air for 100 years, which is a real failure to solve this problem, but I don't care what you think. First 20 programs, one of them was Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly Racial Matters when Gus didn't own a phone. Gus didn't own a computer. Gus didn't even own the book Racial Matters, but he had read it cover to cover more than once. I started reading the book this time around and I don't even have a previously highlighted copy 
hard or digital even though I do own it now to look and say oh what did I highlight because at that time I didn't even own the book but we had them on the program after I read it read the library copy and even the library University of Washington they had it their copy it had a white power sticker as a bookmark literally it had the cross all of that white power in a book titled racial matters the FBI's secret file on black America 1960 to 1972 remember what I said in the book club this year 22 caliber killer I went to get the article in Newsweek at the University of Washington library from October 1980 about the 22 caliber killings and black people being in fear because of racism it was ripped out of the university magazine ignorant about even the fact that they have Dr. O'Reilly's book at their library and the ISIS papers and Urugu who's ignorant about racism again who is reading those books they don't have a whole lot of Negroes like Gus T enrolled undergrad or grad at the University of Washington and the ones I've met who are there are not reading those books I only read pay or I have started my reread that's what I was doing uh, beating the extreme heat in Seattle just go to the beach and read that's what you're supposed to do right go to the beach and read that's cliche summer reading that's what I've been doing black bodies in the river I read that at the lake now I'm reading racial matters at the lake beach Richmond Beach now love Richmond Beach Uh, so what did I read at the beach it didn't even take me reading very much Dr. Howe could have read like 20 minutes of racial matters and like oh my gosh I got great great quotes and Cointel Pro has to be mentioned so this is from page two of Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly's racial matters Fannie Lou Hamer again he's the Fannie Lou Hamer scholar at Florida State University David Houck white man Dr. O'Reilly writes Fannie Lou Hamer's second encounter with the FBI occurred on the second Sunday in June 1963 after she stepped off a bus in Winona, Mississippi. Hamer and five companions were returned, returning from a voter registration workshop in nearby South Carolina when their bus pulled in for a rest stop. June Johnson and James West went to the lunch counter to sit with Annal Ponder. Uvester Simpson and Rosie Mary Freeman went to the whites-only restroom, what might have been an uneventful encounter, perhaps ending with a white waitress mumbling about how she can't take no more, and white customers mumbling about Negroes using the wrong toilets ended disastrously. Winona Police Chief Thomas Herod ordered the five blacks out and arrested them on the parking lot when Ponder began jotting down the license plate number of his cruiser. Get that one too, the chief told Montgomery County Sheriff Earl W. Partridge after Hamer left the bus to see if she could help. The officers 
brutalized four members of the group at the Montgomery County Jail. They botched the first beating. June Johnson, a 14-year-old girl in a pink dress, bled profusely. So they used blackjacks on the others, interrogating Ponder about her interest in the license plate while battling, battling, batting her head and shoulders. They wanted to know who we would make a report to. I told him the federal government. They said, who do you mean? Bobby Kennedy? They forced two black prisoners prisoners to pound Hamer, an assault that permanently damaged a kidney and an eye. I've heard Mr. Fuller talks about this and uh, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, writes about this in Ready for Revolution, his biography, which is edited by Michael Thelwell. We mentioned him this week. Uh, but where race soldiers, they can use black people to beat up on other black people. Long tradition. Continuing. Uh, permanently damaged kidney knot. A few hours later, Chief Harad and his men locked up a seventh voter registration worker, Lawrence Gayat, who had come to the jail to see about charges and bail. Standing Gayat up against a cell wall, they pummeled him with fists and gun barrels. They beat him just as bad as they did me, Hamer said. The only difference was they'd taken paper and tried to burn his private off and then turned him over to the private sector for a terror-filled automobile ride and another beating in the hills surrounding the time things ended as they had begun with blood. Everyone knew the FBI would investigate with the Winona incident to determine whether the police had violated the civil rights of Hamer and her companions. After returning Gayat to the jail, one of the officers flashed a phony federal badge and asked him to tell me all about what happened. When four or five real FBI agents showed up, it appeared to ponder that they were cooperating with the chief in a way. I gave them a statement and they wrote it down, she remembered, but they didn't ask me to sign it. I just don't trust them. You know, Hamer said after her jailhouse interview with the FBI, he say, well, we would like to talk to you. And I said, well, I just can't do it. You see, I didn't know whether if I said what had happened to me, then he could tell the jailer and I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't. But we sure wanted if we could have just seen anybody. I reckon now God is the only refuge we have because there wasn't nobody from the Justice Department, nobody there to say nothing, just the Negro out by their self. For Fannie Hamer, the FBI was too intimidating, too friendly with the other side, and above all, too late. She found herself alone in her cell, alone with her God, even with the FBI there to interview her and to write a report for the Justice Department. I will stop there. It goes on to give lots more de details. Uh, and he concludes this paragraph by saying the FBI were with her when she went to Washington, D.C. at the beginning of the new decade to speak for a national holiday in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Bureau agents filed information about Hamer under the racial matters in quotes caption and sometimes even under the 100 classification the subversive classification they followed her not to protect her 
but to spy on her footnoted that's what I mean so we had a listener write oh that no count coon Gus mm, he's gonna sit out there and condemn Dr. Hauk buddy I'm a scholar I can't speak for you all it doesn't seem like you all do a whole lot of reading you do a lot of Netflix and YouTube VGQ I have a history degree I am a scholar I've read this book many times so when I say you're a white man you're going to write about Fannie Lou Hamer civil rights movement you're the Fannie Lou Hamer scholar you have this book you're aware of it but you haven't read two pages in you call that what you want you can call that ignorance ignorance if you want I say that is white supremacy racism and I mean oh god all you have to do is keep why did Dr. Welsing out of all the many books a third generation physician could have picked who read her whole life why did she pick this book she picked this book before she even says oh yeah that quote that I just gave you should read that book too which she does do in the ISIS papers but that's after she said you should read this book racial matters the FBI's secret file I don't think of too many books where I mean wow the title should be it you shouldn't have to hear anything about they tried to do what with his privates what they spied on Fannie Lou Hamer for decades what it shouldn't even none of that should be required the title alone like whoo I'm going to put the great American classic the hate you give down until I've read racial matters completely as Dr. Welsing said and maybe a few times oh my some of the details you've and it's got lots of footnotes so there'll be other things that you want to check out and read and all the rest if you have problems accessing this book it's available uh, online if you want an ebook or that sort of thing this is probably a book that's not at your public library university libraries will have this book Wednesday 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific looking for and I told that's gonna be how we start that program so going page by page page number boom 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 the Fannie Lou Hamer scholar doesn't know about this that's acceptable his research interests are the black freedom so you study the black freedom movement you don't know about Cointelpro you don't include that in your scholarship hmm okay Wednesday looking forward then I will write my review of black bodies in the river because there is constructive information but the omissions that is the omissions willful omissions are super important willful acts of racism in Gus T's view Wednesday Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly if you've not read racial matters get to reading so we can man when you go back and listen to that interview listen to the callers who dialed in with questions worthy of great pity primitive right up there with midnight basketball in 2025 
Did they do midnight basketball for anybody else? Do you know of that? Because I don't know of that here. They don't have that here. Lots of white. I mean, what? <laughs> I don't know of midnight basketball. Like they have soccer sometimes that goes kind of late. They have yoga that goes sometimes kind of late, like 11 o'clock. But I mean, like that starts at midnight. Go to bed, man. Go to bed. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, I was going to comment on the clips, but took all the time with racial matters, which is important. Uh, The only thing I will say, that incident in Warren, Michigan, Anthony Mangiapani, I think that's how you say his name, the white man who came out with a laser on the rifle and fired, get moving, and fired shots and all the rest of it. Warren, Michigan, racially restricted region that just keeps coming up and keeps coming up and keeps coming up. I'm so glad we read Sundown Towns, but I mean, Wow. James Lowen collected a lot of detail on Warren. I have to look back at the book. So his website where they looked at all these towns and collected. It is thick for Warren, Michigan. So Warren, Michigan in 1970, Warren had just 28 non-white families out of approximately 180,000 total population. 22 of these families lived in a military installation. So that's 22 out of 28. Uh, In the same year, Warren voters rejected $2.8 million in urban renewal grants that would have required the city to adopt integration policies. No Negroes here. When a Warren high school put up a new basketball hoop here and blacks began coming to north to use them, the district's response was to take the rims down. The school said neighborhood complaints about noise were the reason, but many suspected subtle racism. What is anyway? Whites who live in the area maintain they face complicated issues, even if they harbor no racial animosity. They say they are hostage. What a metaphor to the environment because area whites don't want to live near blacks. The arrival of a single black family in their neighborhood means their property values will likely drop. When black families do move out into the suburbs, they often face unique challenges why not mistreatment Kenneth Mitchell who is black lives in a large home in the city of Sterling Heights which is 91% white with his wife and two young sons overall it's been wonderful Mitchell moved back to the area three years ago after living in a Los Angeles suburb Simi Valley where people lived where they wanted and race issues were largely non-existent really Hmm. this is the most racially charged area I have ever seen, he says. One neighbor refuses to let his daughter play with Mitchell's sons. Cowbell, of course, get those raping niggers out of here. There is this thing that goes back years and years and years that when you cross eight mile, you've got to watch your back, he says. Uh, let's see. Oh, and there's it just goes on. I can't read them all because it's lots for this one. I grew up in Warren and was aware of the tax line known around here as the eight mile line set up by Mayor Ted Bates to keep those folks in quotes in Detroit 
out of Warren. See, that's exactly what we said in sundown towns. James Lowen, Negroes move to Michigan. You're not allowed to just go anywhere in the state of Illinois. Who knew you are confined? You're going to be in Detroit. Lansing, very Flint with all the poison water. Yes, throw you out there. You'll be in very specific locations, and that's it. We're not just going to have Negras move everywhere. Saint, don't think you're coming across the river to St. Joseph unless you want to try swimming back, buddy. But this all is where in Warren again, where the white man, rifle, laser, get moving. Three shots, missed one. Racially restricted region. Anywho, star six one. So when folks dial in, if you read the ISIS papers, did you read Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly's Racial Matters? That's in the dedication. Folks who dial in will see if they indeed read it. Uh, let's see. Star six one for folks who have commentary to share. We'll nab folks uh, with their hands. If you have other thoughts on news segments, other things that have happened over the past uh, week or so. Let's see. Oh, I forgot the others. Uh, let's see. Uh, folks could take about five minutes to share their thoughts. I got excited with the rest of it. Folks could take about five minutes to share uh, their thoughts, observations, commentary. That would be great. If you know you're in a noisy environment, uh, if you could use your mute button, that way you can share, give us your commentary or what have you, and then mute, get back if it's loud, people watching TV, or if you're with a lot of folks enjoying the great weather and all that. Stay hydrated if you're someplace where maybe it's not great, if it's maybe excessively warm. Stay hydrated. Try to get to a shaded area if possible. If you've got AC, then, you know, right on. Uh, anyway, no metaphors for this broadcast, any of the cows uh, programs. Uh, counter racist logic science is about correct use of words. Be as precise as we can with what it is that we are trying to articulate. I will give reminders uh, about the metaphors, analogies, and the like. Now, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. Uh, retired firefighter should be with us on NAB. Uh, other hands uh, as folks dial in. Uh, again, for all the folks who dial in, if you read the ISIS papers, did you read Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly's Racial Matters? Greetings, everyone. Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, uh, the ISIS papers, I, uh, I've uh, read the ISIS paper, ISIS papers, and uh, I still use it for reference for a lot of things based on what somebody may bring up in a conversation uh, that I have, uh, and then later after the conversation, I probably would go and see. Well, what I, I know, Doctor Wilson says something about this, and I would look, look, look it up, or I 
if if it's the right person, I would share the information uh, with uh, with uh, someone uh, that comes from the ISIS papers. Uh, the Kenneth O'Reilly book, uh, I think I've read it thoroughly once, but it was a long time ago. And based on your talking about it, I think with the last broadcast, a wonder last broadcast, I've been looking for it. <laughs> I've been looking for it around here. Uh, it's probably in one of, one of my plastic, uh, storage boxes. I know, I know it when I see it because it, it has an image of probably the, probably the most documented, <laughs> of, uh, victim of racism and white supremacy, uh, Cohen Tempro, uh, uh, in the history of Cohen Tempro, uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King has image on the, on the cover. Uh, I, but I will end up finding it, and by Wednesday, I, I would have read it again. Uh, it's just been so long ago. I mean, probably about 10 years ago is uh, the last time I uh, read the book. Uh, so I have to read it again to get fresh on it. And uh, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Just answering the questions. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, gets A plus from Dr. Welsing. Uh, we got one person said he read the ISIS papers and uses it, not just dust, dusty old book that we've forgotten about, but uses it currently uh, as a reference point. Reference point and read Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly racial matters. Uh, said he's going to look forward to reading it again before Wednesday. So we got one. Bravo on his assignment um, before we nab some of the other folks who uh, dialed in I just wanted to make sure I got in number one uh, we mentioned his name before they had the segment on uh, Bud Fowler being inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame uh, victim of white supremacy uh, and they talked about him playing before Jackie Robinson great important uh, we talked about consistently Moses Fleetwood Walker first black male play professional baseball victim of racism they do not mention him like ever <laughs> so maybe we should read that book too he wrote his own book but I always think it's important to get his name in uh, the other report I just wanted to get in quickly the segment where they talked about the so called Central Park Five raping black males raping non-white males so called black and brown males there that segment on NPR the white female reporter Mary Louise Kelly she said she's talking to uh, D.A. Bragg in Manhattan. She says, talking about Stephen Lopez, so this is the one victim who didn't get compensated and was just now had these uh, conviction vacated. So she says, I just want to start to be clear. Does your office believe he is not guilty? Never was of that charge. So we don't start out with, oh man, isn't this terrible? these young children and branded rapists and convictions and all the rest of it that shouldn't have happened and oh and they didn't even have their parents present or an attorney and all that it's hmm you sure he didn't do this crime hmm we letting we letting a guilty person I would what did uh, my man uh, Trayvon Martin's killer say he said they, they always get away with it with it hmm D.A. Bragg responded, well, certainly as a matter of law, 
as you said, you know, his indictment was vacated. And so he certainly, like the rest of us, presumed innocent, as I said in court today, you know, and you just framed the history so well, like the other five before him. Here we had there had been some hair comparisons that were done that now has been shown to be a kind of faulty analysis. So there's no physical evidence. No, she interrupts him. Mary Louise Kelly hair comparison so no DNA evidence that's come to light pause right there this is one of those let's wait a second let's wait a second we've heard how many times for uh, raping black males where oh we got hair the niggers did it oh we got hair the niggers did it for them to come back all the years later that they're pseudoscientific BS all these convictions where they had to come out and do major reports if there's going to be an interruption, it's not interrupting. Oh, so we got hair comparison, no DNA evidence. You mean this junk BS pseudoscience was used to help pressure a plea conviction and to convince people that these folks had raped a white woman? And then now we, Anthony Broder and the like, now we got to come back years later and say, oh, wow, we're still dealing with all this pseudoscience? Not just to interrupt to say, oh, we got hair comparisons. So DNA evidence that's come to light. Get out of here. All of that. Get even like I said, the start with the presumption. Are you sure we didn't find any evidence that he did this? And not bringing up the wilding and all of that with this case. Donald Trump taking out a whole full page ad and all the rest of it. Like, get out of here. Um yeah, there's more I could say about some of the other even reminded me of Aya Gruber, the feminist war on crime. We were talking about her book earlier this year, Central Park Five. In fact, we even the poem, the author of Precious Sapphire, she wrote about the Central Park Five, Central Park Five wild thing talking about these young victims with a presumption of guilt raping black beasts I do the wild thing I do the wild thing let's see other folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up star 61 Bay Area mom should be with us as well look for other hands also uh, everybody who's dials in did you read the ISIS papers did you read Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly's book um, hi I read the ISIS papers I bought the book with Kenneth O'Reilly book I Yes, I'll read it uh, by the time Wednesday comes. I have I have a lot of books. At least I bought it. I'll, I'll get on it. My brain. Um, but I'm, I'm halfway, half half. Uh, let's see the the clips. Um, you had a clip. Oh, the artificial. Um, what was it? The, uh, the computer. Uh, the artificial intelligence. How they're. Uh, um, identifying um, black people um, negatively versus other nationalities, um, and when uh, <laughs> they, they were, they were the uh, gentleman that was speaking was asked, "Are you? Um, is is it because they're black? Are you? Is is it? Are they um, separating the blacks from the white? Are the black ones the ones basically guilty?" and um, how he just kind of strayed away from it and made it brought up. Well, you know, it's it's, it's sexist. It's women. It, 
you know, like it made it. So when you mix sexist in with racism, it's like, well, no, it's just, it's not just racism and sexism. So it makes it confusing versus just keeping it at one, one subject, which it was supposedly racism. But if you throw in sexism, it, it just makes it all crazy. And then he never did answer about, he, I didn't, we don't have enough information about that. And he just, it just made everything confusing and they just didn't want to target. Yes, our artificial intelligence that we created is racist and um, also dependent on the women. They're probably racist too against the women. It's probably black women or non-white women that they're, uh, um, they know those numbers. They just weren't ready to answer that question and they didn't really have to. Um, WKRP in Cincinnati. So in Cincinnati, is it in Cincinnati, the police officer, uh, how the officers, they, um, they, they're shooting, um, people, but they don't get in trouble. They get maybe suspended for maybe the max, what, nine days, and then they get to keep their job, and over 90% of those, um, when they kill people or shoot people, they don't even, it's not, it's nothing, it's no big deal. They go back to work the next day. Um, and then it takes a whole lot for them to even get um, more than 30 minutes suspension. And then the max is like less than two weeks. I just thought that was business as usual. I don't understand why it's confusing. This is what they do. This is what they're going to do, and they're always secure, those officers, even with the um, – the vaccinations and testing, they, hey, no, I'm not doing this, and I'm not getting in trouble. And they're not. It's just a, to, everything is a to-be-continued. And um, the Central Park, uh, five, six, not, however, I remember that case. Um, I remember it wasn't a, a younger guy that was, they scared him because they were just teenagers, and I do remember um him um, kind of taking a, a lesser charge, and um, you, you overturn it, but he never got compensated for. Uh, I forgot the word that they used that uh, that they did. It wasn't overturned. Um, they used another word for uh, vacated it. Yeah, they vacated it, but he still did the time. Still traumatized. Only who knows what happened to him in in the um, prison system. Oh, whatever they did to him, especially being accused of raping somebody. My goodness. I just, the forever trauma. What about the mental repair? Um, and I think that's all I can remember, uh, offhand. I'm at, I'm sorry for my background noise. I tried to go into the room because I had to work because it's twerk competition weekend and there's no one here to watch the kids, so I have to. <laughs> I have to watch the kid while mom does her twerk stuff. It's so sad. But I'm here for the children. They, they love me. And I'll mute my line. And thank you. Did you say it's twerk competition weekend? That that's why you have to, to work and look out for the little folks? That's not why I was here yesterday and today, sir. Oh, it's two days. I'm wounded. I shouldn't have asked. Woo! 
Woo! It's two days last night and tonight. Eight hours today. Oh, after I left here at 2.30 last night, she said, did I tell you what time to come back? Please tell me. I said, no, I've been waiting for days to know what time you want me to come back. Oh, from 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. So I'll be here until 10 p.m. in um, the sundown town. Hopefully I'll make it safely. Um, I'll meet my life. I guess you you can't read uh, racial matters. Uh, the FBI secret file on Black America from 1960 to 72. If you gotta babysit and compete with the weekend twerk competition, what in the world, <laughs> Doctor Welsing? She used to say like, "Man, we do not need any more dancing." Like, good gosh, like, come on. Let let's all the dance and everything else we were talking about the Franklin yesterday like all right let's let's calm all that down we have done all the dancing let's sit down and do some studying we will get Dr. O'Reilly's book and do some reading see about Cointelpro see how that relates to black identity extremists see that could have been the project right there the young people now this is a bigger book but I mean hey summer read if you got high school students if they're about to go to college or if they read pretty well Hey, read this here book. Now, how does this relate to black identity extremists in the 21st century? Give me like a two page essay or something. There you go right there. But anything would be better than the weekend twerking festivities. Hmm. Anywho, uh, the officers who were not being disciplined uh, that was actually in San Diego not that far from where you are where they were breaking in people's houses and shooting the homeowners and what have you and no discipline you know maybe they do some sort of uh, verbal warning or written write up and that's it still out got their badge and gun and all the rest in Cincinnati it was the uh, white female officer who incidentally was recorded cursing calling the black children niggers and all that but I mean she was like literally if you could hear the audio she was like growling like oh I just hate them so much look at these niggers these are like high school students what what sort of hatred do you have towards black children what have they done to you they key your car egg your windshield Call, tell me what it is. You have to you run it down for me. Why you got to be in your car just fuming. Oh, oh look at those difference. Oh, I, that, that's the same thing. Mark Hall was doing in Ripley, Mississippi. I only know Ripley because of the cows broadcast. We have cows investors. Lovely black female born right there in Ripley, Mississippi. That's the only reason I even know of Ripley misses as soon as I saw this like oh my gosh could have been you know her relatives or what have you we talked about that we just talked about that yesterday we talked about that repeatedly I played the clip before that with James Craig Anderson that's 2011 that's also in Mississippi not like I said yesterday not a whoops not a I was drunk I wasn't paying attention. I was texting. No. I saw Nick was in the road and I got excited. He's 
50 points. We talked about that. We talked about that for years. They have racist jokes where white people joke, put that in quotes, about, oh my goodness, we can run over it. Exactly what he said. Oh, that's bonus points. Oh, you get the pregnant one. Oh, that's extra points. You get the pregnant woman. The pregnant Negra, I'll say. And then they sit around and look at statistics, right of way and all the rest. of Wow. The Negras are most likely to be involved in pedestrian accidents, pedestrian fatalities and the like. These were children. We even talked about that with Dr. Wells and we got that in the archives 2014 where she was talking about in D.C. uh, that they're trying to encourage black cyclists, black people to get out and ride. Um, when you got this sort of environment of racism and I said they got studies in Portland talking about it takes longer for black people to cross the sidewalk we talked about that in D and then this gotta talk to your children honestly about racism white supremacy and the danger of all of this even as young children can't even just go out and ride your bike without being fear of terrorized it's supposed to be summertime right I can get out and just have fun and Enjoy my youth and all the rest of it? No. Anywho, number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. Nap other folks, hopefully. Folks are not spectating if they're out and about, staying hopefully hydrated and cool in the midst of all of this. Bravo. But yes, not spectating if you have thoughts either on any of the news segments uh, and or any other suggestion. You read Racial Matters, so then you can share that as well. Also, just make sure that we pause to acknowledge the massive floods that they had in Kentucky. I think St. Louis as well, the Missouri area. They had lots of flooding, all that with the whatever you want to call it, extreme weather event events, uh, climate change. Either way, uh, these type of events frequently have a disproportionate impact on black people, non-white people. So uh, folks in the Kentucky area, St. Louis area, Missouri area might be dealing with some of the flooding. Hopefully you all are uh, safe. Thoughts and prayers, everyone out there. Guess why we have a moment while folks are getting their thoughts together, maybe get into an area where they can speak. Uh, If this came up yesterday with neutralizing workplace racism, uh, if you drive, that's a part of your job. You should have an extensive code about what you do, what you don't do with regards to your vehicle while you are working. If you are in any sort of traffic accident, there's some sort of collision with another vehicle or collision uh, you're on a scooter or what have you or even if you're a pedestrian hopefully not whatever it is uh, contact the enforcement officials most jurisdictions it's the law that's supposed to happen the other part there's so many uh, variables number one I've talked to so many victims where they've had hit and runs with white people where they hit a non-white person again you have no idea they might have done this deliberately but they hit a non-white person and then just drive off really quickly. So number one, in those sort of situations, try as best you can to see if you can get your bearings to get license plate, contact information, 
you want to contact the authorities. This is not one, as we were saying yesterday, like, regard, even if it's, you know, you think it's minimal damage, that sort of thing, to your vehicle or to your person, that sort of thing, they might come out, hey, blank check, here, you know, whatever you need, or here's, you know, bricks of cash, you know, I pull out my, my briefcase right here, and boom, 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 I don't want to contact, blah, blah, blah. Con- even if you take the money, contact the authorities. Uh, if it's an accident, of enforcement officials are supposed to be contacted and especially if you're the victim you're not at fault oh yeah contact the enforcement officials you want a record a police report all of that uh, to help you in pursuing the person like I said I know way too many victims of racism where they have actually been working and been the victim of a white hit and run where again you don't know if this person is under the influence when that could be all kinds of things suspended license warrant who knows did this on purpose all of the above so contact the enforcement officers I always know that's you know system of white supremacy and it was just talking about the officers in San Diego Cincinnati all the rest of it I get it but you want a record I guess if it's a minor injury type thing you could even go to the precinct yourself the police station yourself uh, and make the report if you you know don't want them coming to your residence Uh, it might be the sort of thing that you could do over the phone or even online in some instances uh, so you know you don't have to factor that into the equation but I mean yeah contact the enforcement officers you want documentation same thing we talk about in the workplace documentation about what happened and you never know they might try and contact enforcement officials and blame you for all of this so yeah contact enforcement officers uh, officials if there's some sort of accident collision on the road uh, try to be safe as you can out and about dangerous times anywho uh, number again 720-716 Seven three hundred, the code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. We'll see if other folks uh, have commentary to share if they're spectating their way through uh, all the so-called high heat and temperatures and such. Let's see. while folks are guess getting their thoughts together and or spectating just really quick to Bay Area mom the report that we heard where they were talking about racism with the uh, AI programs where they'll you know see images or what have you and that was Atlanta Public Radio right and I think that's a black female host of the program she was talking to Andrew Hunt this is a white man one of the authors of the study on the uh, so-called bias in the AI programs so she she asked she said so when they and I think this was the point where they were showing images and they were saying well pick the the doctor they said oh I bet it picked a bunch of of white people for the doctors he said uh well uh well you know uh I think it was uh it was more males yeah that's what it was she said well they picked white males for doctors didn't it he said well uh you know uh uh you know we don't really uh have the data I don't think for what uh yeah what got 
What got picked? There you see, we didn't even same thing we talk about here on the program all the time, where we have the buckets of words uh, sound effect with justice. And I mean, I really you, Andrew Hunt, H U N D T, you co-authored the report. Did you not read the report? Did you not look at the data before it was published? What do you mean you don't have the results to know what was the result of the trial? You said pick the doctor. You showed the image. How many other times did it pick a white man for the doctor when it had to put somebody in a category? How many times did it pick a black person? What do you mean you don't have the results? Standard operating procedure. Andrew Hunt Uh, and this is they'll get to do lots of obfuscating because didn't even answer the question and then the programming who are the people that did this programming then even the data collection like hey should we be being more mindful when we go about putting in this information to make sure we're not putting in racist content to begin with all that they talked about ethics and accountability going into it Mm. yeah Anywho, I said, man, we should see uh, Andrew Hunt, see if we can. His information is right there, can check out the study. In fact, he's at John Hopkins. Karma was just talking about John Hopkins and their long history, their medical department doing experiments on the Negras. That's in medical apartheid. We talked about that with Harriet A. Washington uh, the first time around. We read her book in the book club again, reading more important than watching television. Anywho, let's see. Uh, folks still spe- uh, spectating? Let's see. Yes, yes. Folks spectating, having other things uh, that they're focused on, I reckon, for Saturday, uh, mid-summer Saturday. Uh, we'll give folks a little bit more time, uh, a few more minutes. Uh, if we don't have uh, participation, then we will wrap up. I can get back to reading and get prepared for uh, Wednesday. Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Cannot wait to discuss racial matters. Like I said, we normally do not discuss the same book with the same author. Like that just does not happen on the cows. But I thought this content was important uh, again to go back again Dr. David Hauk now anybody particularly a white person they can just say ignorant I don't know about all this I'm not informed about Cointelpro I didn't read any information on all of this and or I don't think this is important we'll revisit we did have folks who asked about this uh, us reading racial matters in the book club it is very unlikely to happen now. One, I don't take uh, input from listeners on the book club. See the man in the high castle. But two, I try to have like there's so many books. I think Bay Area Mom said that there's so many books uh, that we have to read. Dr. Welsing talked about that. There are new books that are being written all the time. So, man, how do you even get to all of them uh, for a book that we've had the author on the program twice so we had two different chances to read either beforehand or afterwards, even, you know, after he was on the program to check it out, read. I'm inspired. I got to hear what they talked about and all this. So I'll read and all that, like to come back and do it in the book club. I seriously, especially since Gus will now have had to have read that or have read this book 
I don't even know, two, three, four, I don't know, a number of times, it would be very unlikely that we would do this in the book club. Plus, it's kind of a lengthier book. Uh, It's over 300 pages. When I say it's lengthier, it's over 300 pages. So we would be on it for uh, more than two months uh, to read the whole thing. You'll have to do this on your own. And you should be excited. Like, I can only say, like, man, we read dozens of books here at the cows. I mean, countless authors that we've talked to and all the books that we've covered in the book club. I would not give you a book that I think, oh man, this is a real snoozer. Whites, blacks, or wretched of the earth, Franz Fanon type thing. Like, I would not sit around and we need to read this again or have this author on again. I don't think Dr. Welsing would put at the beginning of her book that it's just, oh, this is just... Uh, total snooze fest. No, it will hold your attention two or three times. In fact, it will hold your attention. It talks about a whole a generations of black people and a variety of different ways that black people were terrorized. So, yes, get your hands on the book check it out Uh, you can make it a family project as I said if I had offspring once they're older this is not a book in any way that would be like uh, re-level or grade level appropriate for someone who's like 13 14 but I'd say like by the time they're 17 18 maybe even 16 depending on what their read level is oh yeah especially if they're going to college oh yeah you don't want your brain computer to sit around and rot uh, for these months, if you graduate in June and then you're going to have like uh, Mr. Gunn we just talked to and then school doesn't start for another month or so, maybe even September, depending on where you are in the world. Oh, yeah. Get this here book and uh, do a book report. Same thing I just said. Compare, contrast. How does this relate to black identity extremists, modern efforts to combat racism, white supremacy? two-page report that's easy easy peasy if you're aspiring college freshman that sort of thing and that you can go to the college library get the book do the report any background information if you need anything else to check on ah. reading more important you can do the same thing Gus did go to the beach and read Spectate still get in that sun time, take a few breaks, go splash in the water, all of that. Great. Take some pictures, post that online too. Do a little bit of reading. That's what I did. Do some highlighting. This is crazy. Isn't this crazy? I can't believe it. They were gonna chop his private parts off or burn them off, she said. It will hold your interest for sure. Lots of cowbell. My God, I forgot about Jack Johnson. Cowbells on every page. It is amazing going back and rereading cowbell every page because he talks about Jack Johnson. I already read the part about the sheriff. Tried to burn the private person's parts off. uh, Burn the black person's private parts off. Oh my God! It is amazing. It will. It will hold your attention. Prepping for racial matters. Let's see. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like 
to participate. We'll see folks spectating or anything else uh, they would like to share. Yes, can I say something again, Gus? Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, one one uh, thing that I uh, have studied about uh, Cohen Tempro is that there was a significant number of victims that understood that they were being spied upon, but they couldn't speculate it. They couldn't speculate it directly. Like uh, Dr. King and the SCLC, uh, the Black Panther Party, uh, they actually visited, the FBI actually visited uh, Malcolm X uh, after he was about to get thrown out of the Nation of Islam. Uh, and uh, the Nation of Islam also. But, it, but a lot of, but most, if not all, couldn't speculate exactly on what was going on at the time uh the book is is very interesting uh in my opinion because well actually i'm kind of biased towards it because it's history and through history you can you can uh learn on how things of that nature of of uh the practice of racism white supremacy so you can avoid uh, one can avoid uh, uh, having issues and problems with the with the same thing taking place because they've already studied on what was available in the past. Uh, also, I would like to say that uh, I think you had me recorded stating it that Dr. Welsing was very available. I mean, very available. I don't know how I got her number. I forgot on how I got her number. And I will I will call her every now and then, and you know, and, and and basically what would take place, she probably wouldn't answer the phone, but she would call you back, <laughs> just like her recordings would would tell you. Is just in other words, clearly leave your name and your telephone number, and I will get back with you. Something like that, she would say, and she would get back with you and engage in conversation on whatever you called her about you know so though that that was that was real significant for me and uh that's that's what i have to say thank you the grandsister indeed uh dr francis cress welsing um yeah it's uh so important I think to just in ter- I feel like the information that's presented in that text in terms of racism white supreme system oh man that's if you hear the first time he was on the program that's one of the points that he thought major takeaway that this is not about one evil person system same thing Dr. Welsing would emphasize system system of white supremacy racism that this was an entire system used to spot talking about cointel pro used to spy on kill lie about generate conflict between victims of racism and that is a crucially important point our retired firefighter said because i've seen many report and again most of the books that are written about this subject matter are written by white people now that's one to think about as well not just have you read this material but 
most of the folks who write this these sub, uh, these texts are classified as white. Now, it's a whole lot of data behind that too in terms of who's allowed to publish books and blah blah blah. But still, anywho, uh, there are lots of documentaries. Some black people have done those that talk about CoinTelPro. You will hear many of the victims, uh, people that I've named today, Stokely Carmichael, Kathleen Cleaver, Mumia Abu-Jamal, Geronimo Pratt. We read uh, him in the book club. Many countless others. uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Minister Malcolm X, anybody you can name uh, from that time period where they said, man, we knew something is awry like I don't know, like with it, I can't put my finger on it, metaphor, but something, what doctors say, what's happening? Something is happening. Countless people said that. We knew uh, that they, they, they were doing something to disrupt things or cause these conflicts or where were these problems coming from. We just didn't understand the magnitude. Countless folks said, and in fact, they say that like current 2022 that we are still confused about the magnitude of this program and what white people were doing to us in a very coordinated fashion. That right there, I think, is so critically important. Maybe why Dr. Welsing thought this was such an important book. Uh, if you are a black person, you are literally stumbling, fumbling, groping in the direction of trying to figure out what this problem is and one should be done. I mean, it's page after page after page in this book where he's J. Edgar Hoover, white people at the FBI and beyond. They have reports. I highlighted it. Let me see if I can find it really quick while folks are spectating and then we can wrap up if folks uh, don't have other comments. Uh, to share let me see it's called oh I forgot I went to the beginning of the book to share that with you all so the first chapter is called the Negro question origins of a private war uh, and they talk about uh, J. Edgar Hoover having sir oh my God. they said that the, uh, within the culture at large respectable racism flourished the man in the street talking about the man in the street hummed such popular turn of the century tunes as if the man in the moon were a coon. Now you want to do some sleuthing on YouTube, please share, tag me, send it to me. If you find on YouTube or anywhere else, if the man in the moon were a coon. And continue. Black people not protecting the black people. Negroes are subversive. Marcus Garvey <laughs> snooping on the black press. Uh, let's see. No protecting black people. Get that over and over again. That We haven't even got to Fannie Lou Hamer where we keep getting this over and over again. No protecting black people. Being lynched. Don't care. Uh, let's see. No agency. They're not hiring uh, any black people either. 
uh, to be employed. Oh, here we go. <laughs> here we go. Uh, let's see. I'll double check, see if any other folks have. Star 6-1, if you have a hand, if you have anything to say, go ahead and get your hand up now. I'll read this portion, and if we don't have any hands, we can wrap up. So this is still very early in the book, page 18, the chapter literally called Racial Matters in the book by the same title. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover had his agents collect information under a special Negroes category as part of their regular investigations of domestic communist and native fascist infiltration and he invariably included their wartime reports on Negro organizations with reports on communism and German, Italian and Japanese fifth columnists. By the early 1940s World War II the director's surveillance of blacks and their subversive tendencies had led to the filing of weekly reports with government policymakers on such expansive subjects as Negro trends. He goes on to talk about snooping on A. Philip Randolph and other black people of this time period. They were talking about doing a march on Washington, D.C. Uh, in the late 1940s as well, talking about white supremacy or trying to counter white supremacy in the armed services. But just page after page after page of this type of thing, Negro trends. This is in the 1940s, so I am certain this same sort of activity continues 21st century. Uh, everybody satisfied? Anything else they need to get in? We'll assume folks uh, are satisfied, hopefully involved in something uh, constructive while listening and what have you. Uh, again, we will be here on Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly Racial Matters, the FBI's secret file on black Americans from 1960 to 1972. If you are not familiar with Pro, what it is, uh, we have done a number of programs. John Patash, his work on Tupac on the FBI and what have you. We've done a number of programs uh, discussing this uh, subject matter, even the book club on uh, Geronimo Pratt that we did last year. Feel free to go back uh, in the archives. Uh, in, in fact, even feel free, listen to the first time that we talked about this book in the archives. If you're not able to read it between uh, now and Wednesday, listen to the questions. Then we'll see. I will listen as well. Make sure that we do not do any duplication if we can uh, and see if we can make sure that we cover as much as possible from a very important book listed at the very beginning of the ISIS papers. With that, uh, we will wrap up. Much obliged for folks uh, who listened in live or archive. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Again, uh, with all the weather events and high heat and what hap have you that's happening, stay hydrated, meaning drink lots of water, not fruit juices and sodas and all the rest of it. Water get to the shade if you can uh, hey if you can get to the beach the lake whatever it is take a book racial matters or something constructive do some reading stay hydrated stay constructive with that sobriety would be best have to drink even more water if you're going to be doing all those you know liquor and all the rest of it uh, we need fully functioning brain computers 
to solve our problems, especially if you're going to have Mark Hall race soldiers out trying to run you down in the middle of the street or on the sidewalk or whatever else like man we need all of our attention so we can be alert about things that are happening around us and we are trying to do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no you're out and about you see mark hall calling you nigger and all the rest of it it is time to exit we're not trying to have any sort of exchange and all the rest of it you should be thinking he could be armed laser sight and all if you are not ready to kill and die right now exit if you are in a vehicle sober buckled not on a mobile device just doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers and to try to keep ourselves as safe as possible we also need all of our attention that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no reckless production of offspring reading more important than watching television cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning Mm -hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned